ETJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. The following PTJ podcast is the PTJ Symposium, advancing the evidence base in rehabilitation for military personnel and veterans. The symposium took place at APTA Conference 2013 on June 28, 2013, in Salt Lake City, Utah. The participants are Dr. Alice Aiken, Dr. Helen Brown, and Major Dan Roan. The moderator of the symposium is Lieutenant Colonel John Childs. Dr. Aiken and Lieutenant Colonel Childs were guest co-editors of the special issue on military rehabilitation. Introducing the symposium is PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Crick. Welcome. I'm Becky Craig. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I am delighted to have you here, but I think you should all go out and get a friend, because this is going to be a great session this afternoon. Um, I'm going to let the presenters present themselves, um, but I would like to sort of set it up for you. I went to uh, WCPT in Amsterdam, and I met Alice, who was then the president of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, and I was so impressed with her and her interest in the military and physical therapy in the military that I said, let's do a special issue. And she was excited, and then I came back and John said, of course we should do a special issue. So this has been an incredible journey for them, both, and they've worked so hard, and I hope that you look at the special issue when it comes out and certainly listen to what's going to be talked about today, which are some of the papers in the special issue. So thank you for coming, and enjoy the session. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, John Childs, uh, or I guess I should say for the purpose of this presentation, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Childs. Um, and uh, I'm not used to always necessarily being in uniform when I'm uh, delivering uh, presentations. Um, but it's, it's truly a, a real privilege um, to uh, formally uh, sort of introduce uh, this special issue that, that Beck alluded to um, that was really designed to highlight some of the advances in knowledge uh, that have been uh, gleaned over the last uh, five or ten years um, uh, related to the care of our military uh, active duty as well as the veteran uh, community. It's not lost um, on any of us uh, in this room um, that uh, at least the United States and, and, and our allies have been uh, at war for the last at least ten years. Um, and the implications of that have been, um, from a health perspective, in many ways uh, devastating. Um, one of the uh, real advances, uh, some of the real uh, life-saving technologies that have developed over the, the last 10 or 15 years have done wonders in terms of saving lives. Um, in other words, when you look at the numbers of deaths um, uh, if in Afghanistan, um, obviously every single death is, is tragic, um, but it's um, you know nothing uh, compared to the losses that we've seen in previous wars, World War II, and most recently or prior to Afghanistan, Vietnam. 
Um, so the issues are not so much life-saving because we've gotten very, very good at evacuating um, uh, those who are wounded severely out of theater very, very quickly. Um, uh, there's the what's known as the golden hour. Uh, when someone's seriously wounded, you've got basically an hour to get them to uh, what we would call sort of tertiary medical care uh, here in the United States in order to optimize their chance of, of, of surviving. Um, and we've done extremely well at that. It's not uncommon for a service member to be uh, wounded, um, a, a life-threatening injury on the battlefield, and wake up literally less than 72 hours later in San Antonio or Walter Reed. The, the evacuation process is so rapid now, getting them uh, to uh, life-saving care. But what it does is it promotes enormous, enormous uh, rehab related issues because many of these thousands and thousands of service members who previously would have died from their wounds in previous conflicts are now surviving. And I think we would all say that's a wonderful thing. And, and of course, that's, that's a good thing. But it's uh, obviously um, dramatically increased the rehab uh, needs, whether you're talking about uh, physical uh, rehabilitation, uh, amp the amputee population, um, uh, or uh, brain-related injuries like uh, traumatic uh, brain injury, um, post-traumatic stress, et cetera. And so, um, as Becky alluded to, this was back in, I think, the fall of 2011. Um, uh, we, you know, the, it was on the radar that we're going to be you know, pulling out of Afghanistan in the next couple of years, and so why not take the chance to really highlight some of the progress um, that's been made uh, related to um, the data around the rehabilitation of the military veteran and active duty uh, population. And so, first of all, Beck, thanks so much for the invitation. It's been a real privilege to work on this special issue. I had no idea, I will confess at the time, um, uh, just how personal uh, this would uh, come for me, um, because not probably two weeks uh, after Beck asked me to, uh, to consider uh, being an editor of this special issue, uh, I got uh, very short notice, like 72-hour short notice, uh, that I was going to be in Afghanistan. And uh, little did I know uh, that at the time, uh, but it certainly uh, uh, put this whole special issue in context uh, for me, uh, having recently been in Afghanistan. I was at uh, Bagram uh, Air Base, if you're familiar in Afghanistan, for six months. Um, most of my military career has been in uh, academics. Uh, I've served on faculty for, uh, in the U.S. Army Baylor program uh, for the bulk of my uh, military career um, after having completed my Ph.D. work at the University of, of Pittsburgh. Uh, and when I was in Afghanistan, I was at, I'm, I'm a physical therapist by profession, um, but I was not over there as a PT per se, but rather in a uh, research uh, role. I was serving as what's called the Human Protections Administrator uh, uh, for what's called the Joint Combat Casualty Research Team, or the acronym JC2RT. And, and basically what um, our group was responsible for was the regulatory oversight of the uh, medical research that was ongoing uh, in theater, not just in Afghanistan, but in Kuwait and, and the other um, uh, countries um, where we're, we're active and have, and have a presence. And so that in and of itself was a, a whole fascinating experience. Um, those of you who know me know I'm kind of an anti-regulatory sort of a, a guy. And so uh, sort of asked to, you know, be in sort of a police situation, you know, for me was, uh, you know, was the ultimate sort of irony in, in some sense, because as a researcher, I'm one of these that I like to get stuff done, and sometimes regulators sort of stand in your, uh, your way of making progress. But I uh, really learned to appreciate the very unique 
um, sort of ethical considerations that arise in a combat theater. Um, when you think about things like informed consent, uh, things that we take sort of for granted almost when you're working with uh, competent, uh, coherent, awake uh, patients, at least for the kind of human subjects research that I'm typically uh, involved in. And here you have um, very uh, leading-edge technologies, life-saving technologies um, that are being, being tested on, on service members who are at sort of near death. And so all these issues around consent, how do you consent individuals in that circumstances and can you assume uh, consent and those sorts of issues. But in any event, um, that was a, a, a very interesting experience um, and really brought home to highlight the, the special issue. Uh, so that's a little bit about um, uh, my background. Um, uh, this is also nostalgic for me because less than a year from now, I'll actually be uh, retired uh, from the military. I'm ending my 20-year uh, military career, and so to have a special issue sort of come out at that time for me um, has its own uh, sort of implications uh, of, of being kind of special for, for me as well. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, some of the ad- other uh, panel members. Um, they're going to kind of introduce themselves, but uh, I'll give just a brief highlight. Alice Aiken, immediately to my left, she's the co-editor uh, with me on the special issue. Uh, Helen Brown, uh, who's uh, um, our, uh, shall I say, token OT in the room. we got to have a few, you know, any other OTs in the room? just so she can know she's truly on an island by herself. All right, good, she's truly on an island. Uh, And then uh, my colleague in uniform down there, uh, Major Dan uh, Roan, who's uh, uh, based uh, out of Washington. And in case you're not familiar with the uniforms, Dan's in the uh, the Army and I am in the uh, the, uh, Air Force. Uh, So I'll let each of you, if you don't mind, just take a few moments just to describe your your own background and uh, sort of how you kind of came to be a part of the special issue. Alice? Sure. I'm Alice Aiken. I'm an associate professor and the physical therapy program chair at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. I'm also the director of the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research, which uh, was a project I started up about three years ago that's sort of grown exponentially, and I will talk about it when I set the Canadian context for you. Uh, But most importantly, I came to academia a little bit later in my career, and I did start out my career in the Royal Canadian Navy, first as a ship's navigator and then as a physical therapist. So this is very near and dear to my heart as well. My name is uh, Helen Brown, and I'm in doing my graduate work in London, Ontario, at the Western University. I'm an occupational therapist. I'm also a social worker. Um, I'm clinical. My experience for with started with veterans in 2007. I worked with the elderly and really noticed uh, the residual physical and mental disability and functional issues that were happening um, even in their 80s and 70s. And I felt really that I needed to be a part of this population and assist them within the occupational therapy realm. So then I started back into private practice and uh, worked with younger veterans who had been uh, transitioned from the military and now were in civilian life. This is my current area of research. Um, I've also been employed on the military base in um, Alberta, Canada. And there I was the sole occupational therapist, and I was definitely on an island by myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I really started getting quite a bit of a passion for this area, going, okay, we need some guidelines and some directions. And so I found myself in doing my doctoral work. 
And I am Major Dan Roan, and uh, <clears throat> I've been in the military uh, 16 years. So I started off actually as a, uh, enlisted uh, in the Marine Corps, actually as an operator, a, a sniper, a very, very different uh, profession, and got out and had always wanted to be a physical therapist. So I uh, went through the Baylor program and then uh, through the Doctor of Science program and the Manual Therapy Fellowship. And uh, so now I'm out at Fort Lewis, which is a... A large base that has a uh, a good sampling of of all the forces in the military. We've got special forces, rangers, uh, you know, regular soldiers, and so I've been out there uh, about four and a half years in, in kind of a research role, which has uh, been really uh, exciting, interesting. We've been doing a lot of injury prevention uh, research and trying to understand, uh, you know, the, the injuries are, are things that. Uh, have probably cost us the most in terms of healthcare dollars spent and uh, where our resources go. Uh, and then I got involved in this uh, in this special edition. Had several cases, a lot of interesting cases that I saw uh, during my year deployed uh, as a physical therapist attached to uh, uh, one of the uh, infantry brigade combat teams in Kuwait. So I had submitted some of those images um, for this special edition. So. Uh, Dan, Dan alluded to his um, uh, to, to his role when he was deployed in Iraq. Physical therapists, just to give you a little bit of a context, uh, when we're deployed, typically act in sort of a, uh, for lack of a better description, physician extender uh, sort of a role. Um, most people are familiar with sort of the you know direct access privileges um, that military PTs have. The the irony and and something that's confusing for many is that when you look at the demographics of the types of patients that get referred to a physical therapist, the vast majority of patients we see in the military still come to us via referral, at least in a a stateside peacetime uh, sort of setting. Now, there's certainly exceptions um, to that, but if you just look at the entire... Uh, demographic of the, the PT beneficiary population, it's still mostly referral. Um, when we're deployed, though, um, that, that switches uh, r- very dramatically. Uh, most PTs uh, function as kind of frontline uh, musculoskeletal screen, um, physician extenders, if you will, uh, to basically manage you know, all the non-operative uh, cases for um, um, individuals who've experienced some sort of uh, musculoskeletal disorder. OTs, uh, interesting, this is something I just uh, learned when I initially met Alice. Um, OTs are not in uniform uh, in the Canadian uh, forces, and and Alice may allude to some of this uh, when she, uh, in her presentation. Uh, Whereas in the U.S. military, OTs are uh, in uniform, uh, and by and large, when they're deployed, function more in a uh, mental health uh, sort of a role. So they're typically... um, uh, part of uh, a TBI team, uh, for example. They do a lot of the uh, mental health-related uh, screenings and such. That doesn't mean they don't necessarily uh, do some uh, sort of extremity work and that kind of thing and from a rehab perspective, uh, but most of those individuals, if they require any sort of extensive uh, rehab, are obviously um, uh, evacuated out of theater. So OTs uh, typically take a, a more um, mental health kind of a role in theater. Um, Before Alice um, uh, kicks us off, what I'd like to do briefly is just highlight um, the series of papers um, that are going to be included in the special issue, um, which, as I understand, is going to be Jan, correct me, September issue, we're still uh, good. And um, 
Most of you may or may be familiar with, with Jan Reynolds. Uh, those of us who serve uh, on the uh, editorial board, and I know Beck, um, uh, Jan is one of our best friends, one of the most organized, uh, responsive, at all hours of the day, uh, individuals you'd ever want to uh, work with. And uh, Jan, um, your efforts on the special issue are very consistent with everything else that you do, and that's with uh, extreme excellence. And so uh, thanks for, for all your help in uh, organizing the, the special issue. Uh, so it'll be coming out in uh, September. Uh, here's uh, just the titles and just the uh, brief objectives. Um, just to give you a flavor, we're obviously not going to present all of these uh, papers here today, um, but you can get a sense for um, the variety of, of research um, covering um, topics both among active duty uh, soldiers as well as uh, veterans. Um, there's work-related uh, reintegration orders for veterans with mental disorders. Um, there's some biomechanical-related studies looking at uh, uh, dynamic pressure uh, during uh, gait. Obviously, one of the big issues in soldiers is the large amounts of uh, uh, combat gear that you have to wear and, and, and the biomechanical sort of implications uh, of that. Um, there's some interesting uh, work that's been done on sleep uh, deprivation and its impact on uh, visual uh, acuity. Um, uh, Adjustment-related issues as uh, veterans transition to uh, civilian life. Uh, you can see here some of the um, uh, factors associated with uh, rehab in the VA system among patients with uh, amputees. Uh, uh, what's interesting when I when I say the word amputee, you know, amputee and TBI uh, certainly gets a huge, huge dose of attention from a PR perspective, as well it should. I'm not uh, obviously trying to undermine or or, or underestimate the uh, the implications of that, but as Dan uh, alluded to. Uh, it still is the garden variety, musculoskeletal, um, non-traumatic, non-battle-related, you know, battle related, back, neck, the kinds of things that we experience day in and day out in the United States um, that are still the most uh, costly, even in a deployed uh, sort of a, of a, of a setting. And, um, and so it's interesting from a funding perspective, and maybe in the Q&A we can get to some of this, um, uh, the funding for all sorts of... of, of logical and some political reasons are sometimes disproportionately allocated uh, around things like amputee and, and TBI. Um, and, uh, uh, um, and so there's just some interesting um, discussion items around, uh, you know, how, how should we fund research uh, related to these conditions. Um, there's uh, some work related to the uh, Palm trial um, that I'll discuss uh, in, my, in my talk. Uh, there's some case reports. Um, and again, uh, the Dan's uh, talk that he's going to do, uh, just highlighting a few cases uh, that he saw uh, when he was in uh, Iraq, uh, and then Helen's talk, uh, which is geared around uh, the occupational uh, therapy perspective uh, in a military context, some return uh, to service-related uh, issues uh, following uh, mild uh, TBI, uh, and then finally a paper uh, out of the Army Baylor program related to uh, the overall role of military PTs in uh, combat. So I hope this gives you just a flavor for the type of work um, that's uh, going to be included in the special issue. Obviously, it's not exhaustive uh, by any means. There's been lots and lots of, of very relevant work published in other journals over the last 
uh, 10 years. And, you know, the goal, uh, of course, with research and is that uh, the knowledge that we gain today will inform the care uh, probably as much uh, for tomorrow's war uh, as it does uh, today's war, much like the knowledge that we gleaned uh, in, in Vietnam and in the first uh, Desert Storm um, uh, conflict informed the care that was delivered uh, in our most recent activities in Iraq and Afghanistan. So without further ado, Alice. Okay, uh, thanks everyone for, for being here today. And uh, a particular thanks to Becky for, for just coming right up with saying let's have a special edition. It's been tremendous for us uh, to move forward with this and for the special edition as John just introduced to speak about many areas of rehab, not just physical therapy. So I think that, uh, I thank you for that. It's a little bit stepping out this outside the box for you, so it's much appreciated. What I'm going to do today, it, rather than speaking about a specific article, is just set the Canadian context for people and where we are in terms of re research and really trying to engage the international community. So it will set the stage for how important this particular journal is to us as well. So I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about the Canadian context, talk about our institute, the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research, the requirement, and a little bit about our outcomes and where this journal fits not only in the research outcomes, but most specifically in the knowledge translation outcomes, which I think is really critically important. So in Canada, um, military personnel, like in the U.S., have their own health system. It's called the Canadian Forces Health Services. And they are an excellent system. And in fact, when they were running what John referred to as the tertiary care hospital in Kandahar, it's called a Roll 3 over there, when they were running that from 2006 to 2009, they did such a good job that they received an international award called the Larray Award for excellence in medical care. And this award's not awarded every year or anything. It's only when there's been something of international significance. So it'll let you know the caliber of the system that our military people are used to. Within the Canadian Forces Health Services, there are only five uniformed health professions. Physicians, um, mostly what they call general duty medical officers or, or GPs, um, but they also have surgeons and uh, anesthesiologists, internal medicine specialists, most of the types of specialist physicians you'd need. Nurses, pharmacists, social workers, and physical therapists. Those are the only uniformed health professions. Canadian Forces Health Services, however, does have a large cadre of civilian practitioners. The civilian practitioners do not deploy, but they work on the bases back home. What's quite interesting, though, in the, uh, Canada, where we have socialized medicine um, that we are very proud of and would never give up, uh, the people who are not eligible to participate in the Canadian Forces Health Services system are military families, they are reliant upon provincial health care systems. Veterans, so once you release, you go out into the provincial health system, which I'm going to talk a little bit later about being a bit of a, an issue. And reservists. So if, reser if a reservist is employed full-time, they are under the care of the Canadian Forces Health Services. However, when they go back to being part-time and back to their home units, they go back to the provincial health care system, which... And in fact, adds additional problems for them to not be in a system that um, really understands their needs. 
So the research requirement in, you know, in Canada, so we're a population of about 33 million. We're uh, about a tenth of your size, I think, uh, population-wise. In the country, we have about 700,000 veterans and approximately 100,000 serving members if we count regular force and reserve forces together. Because our veterans' affairs, the equivalent of your DVA, is primarily a health insurance company. They, they do much more than that. But really what they do is they, if you've been injured in service, they ensure that you receive adequate care when you get out and they provide you health insurance. But as a result, the only people who become official clients of Veterans Affairs are those who've been injured in service. And it, right now that stands at about 11% of the veterans in the country. So the rest of us who were not injured in service are kind of just out there in the wind. We don't have a way of capturing them. And it's a bit of a problem as we realize the latent effects of deployment on health. So it's a big issue we struggle with in Canada and how do we capture it. And Veterans Affairs is well aware of it and want to capture it too. It's just not in our modern psyche. The other thing that's not in our modern psyche is a 25 or 30-year-old veteran. We still picture the World War II or Korean vet, uh, an older gentleman, typically still in a in a wheelchair or or you know wearing their um, jacket with their crest on it, and so it's not you know it's not something that we we still struggle with the term veteran. When we start when we looked at setting up the institute, the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research, we really realized that we stood alone amongst our major military allies in not having an academic. Institute dedicated to researching the needs of military personnel, veterans, and their families. Most countries have one. The U.S. being big and having lots of money for research has many, um, which we're endeavoring to link with. But it's, it's impressive what's going on here. And really why we exist is to augment the existing research capacity that the Department of National and Veterans Affairs have but also to provide an arm's length capacity for research. So I'm absolutely certain it's the same here that if the government does their own research, regardless of the rigor, if it's not what the public wants to hear, they're criticized for it. So to be able to reach out to the academic community and the universities to provide research is huge for the government. It's a huge bonus for them. I'll also say with Afghanistan, and what Canada did, I think, exceptionally well, is when our fallen soldiers came back, it was very public for us. So they all were flown into a central base because they had to go through um, a, a coroner in central Canada. But they, it was very public, and it was always publicly announced, and people were always out there, and it was televised. And that stretch of the Trans-Canada Highway is called the Highway of Heroes now. And it's, uh, it was very public for us. And I think for the first time in my memory, what the military does and how they're treated came into the psyche in, in the Canadian population in a way that it's never been. I think you're very fortunate here that it's been that way for the U.S. for a lot longer. And um, it, it was really, it's really something spectacular. So when I released, I always say when I released from the military in 1998, we couldn't have started this institute. I just don't think that the public interest was there. Uh, and so as a result of the public interest being high, the academic interest was high as well. So we really were able to garner um, the academic, get the academic community together quickly. So what we are basically is we're a network of 26 Canadian universities. So that is the majority of the Canadian universities, as well as what we call the G13, which are the big 13 uh, universities that do the most research, are all members of our network. And we've really brought together a cadre of researchers who are dedicated to researching the needs of military personnel, veterans, and their families 
Right now, we have an active list of about 1,000 researchers in Canada who engaged with us. We really work as a conduit between academia and the government organizations, so our Department of National Defense, particularly the Canadian Forces Health Services Group, and Veterans Affairs Canada. And we also connect to the international organizations, as I mentioned. And we have our three outcomes being research, education, because you can't build a research institute if you don't build the next generation of researchers, and knowledge exchange or knowledge translation, a very big piece for us. So our vision is that the health and well-being of Canadian military personnel, veterans, and their families is maximized through world-class research resulting in evidence-informed practices, policies, and programs. And we take it as our mission to enhance the lives of military personnel, veterans, and their families by harnessing the national capacity for research. So why would we do this? Well, I think what we've realized, and this is true around the world, um, John spoke about this a bit, but I think out of every war come medical advances. Uh, you know, we, certainly we wouldn't probably have vaccines, or maybe we would, but not, of as, not as um, easily as we did. And I think what we're going to see out of Afghanistan as the legacy is certainly a new focus on mental health research and TBI, particularly mild TBI, um, and in particular, distinguishing between post-traumatic stress disorder and mild TBI and being able to treat that properly. But there's also been some absolutely remarkable advances in physical health. Uh, amputees in particular, uh, though TBI obviously would be physical health as well, but amputees in particular and upper extremity amputees, which affects quality of life in a way that um, a lower extremity um, amputee might not um, so I think the range of injuries that we've seen and, the, and being able to keep people alive and providing ed excellent medical care has put a new onus on the rehab professions to ensure that people then have a quality of life after injury, following injury. The other thing that we know is that there are complex stages of presentation of diseases over the life course of an individual following deployment. So our Veterans Affairs Canada tells us it's not uncommon that the average time people come forward following service with a health-related complaint is 10 years following service, and it can be up to 50 years following service. So we know that there is a, there is a latent impact. The other thing we know is there's no typical situation. As clinicians, we probably know that for everyone that we treat, but there is no typical situation of presentation. So it's a little bit harder to capture on a national scene what's going on. But the other thing that I think is going to be an enormous legacy of Afghanistan that's very important uh, and Iraq here is the impact on the family and the transgenerational impact, and particularly of, of mental health injuries. And a lot of our colleagues in the military tell us that it, it would be virtually impossible to go through um, uh, an explosion of an IED, you know, a, a bomb exploding, uh, you lose your leg, and you don't have some kind of trauma associated with that, um, aside from just losing your leg. So um, what we know is that there is, you know, that there's, there's a new diagnosis now of secondary post-traumatic stress disorder that they're seeing in military spouses um, and transgenerational mental health impacts on children. The other thing that's really huge and one of the reasons it affects kids is that they're so wired. Um, it used to be if particularly dad at the time went off to war, you got the odd letter and you, you, know, you might have known what was happening. Uh, now you speak to dad in Kandahar and then you hear 20 seconds later on the news or you get 
um, a, tweet, a tweet that a bomb just went off in Kandahar. So it's much more stressful. And indeed, I think that that goes back to when we were engaging the research community, we got some very prominent high-level researchers who said things like, wow, I just thought nobody's dad talked following the war. I didn't realize that this was actually a diagnosis and there was something going on. So I think a lot of this has come to light following Afghanistan and Iraq, and the impact on the family is enormous. And it, you know, I think internationally that's being recognized. But for those who serve, it's, it's really unique, and, and I'm afraid I'm not as well-versed with the American context as I should be, but, um, you know, people serving expect an extremely high level of medical and rehab care, and they get it. It is the Cadillac service, there's no question. Uh, and they have tremendous continuity of support when they go from base to base. So care is standardized, whether you're deployed, whether you're in your home unit, wherever you are, care is standardized and continuity of care is there. So coming out into a provincial health care system where that doesn't necessarily work can be a bit of a shock. And in fact, um, communications in the health system is fantastic. So if, if you're if your general duty medical officer tells you, I'm going to talk to the pharmacist, I'm going to talk to the physical therapist, and they'll get in touch with you and this will happen, it'll happen. That doesn't happen in the civilian healthcare system. You've got to go get in touch with the pharmacist and the physical therapist and whatever you need. So the expectations are high, the impacts are across the life course, and when you're facing an already difficult reintegration into society, potentially, coming out of a very structured environment, it can be difficult. And I always say, you know, I got out of the military, um, you know, having a job. I was going to run a physio clinic. It was, it was great, and I was starting my master's part-time, and I had everything, you know, going on. And I wore a Navy uniform, so I always wore my, um, my partial dress uniform. So I wore a black skirt and a white, my white Navy uniform top to work every day. And the first day of work, I went into absolute panic and I wore a black skirt and a white blouse to work because that's what you wear to work. That's what I'd worn to work always. So, you know, you, you, you don't realize the little sort of reintegration parts that are difficult. Um, the government stakeholders, just to highlight again who we work very closely with, um, Veterans Affairs Canada, and then from our Department of National Defense, the other three groups, so Canadian Forces Health Services, Defense Research and Development Canada, so I don't want you to think that we don't have a, we have an extremely robust uh, defense research program as well, but a lot of it is classified or um, on very specific topics that are not readily applicable to civilian community. We also work very closely with the Chief of Military Personnel who is responsible for morale and welfare. He's a two-star in our military, and um, his whole department is responsible for morale and welfare, not only of the serving member, but of the family. So some of our international links, and um, this is part of every presentation I give because we're, we're very proud of it. We've linked really closely with the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University, run by a retired uh, Air Force uh, colonel, and he's a professor in their school of business, and they do a lot of entrepreneurship and reintegration programs there. They've got um, really remarkable programming. The Senate... Center for Military and Veterans Families at University of Southern California, uh, run by Dr. Tony Hassan, who is a retired military social worker. 
at the University of Pittsburgh, McGowan, the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, run by a veteran himself, Dr. Rory Cooper. We work really closely with them. And we have this special edition of the APTA journal coming out. I'm particularly proud of that because it really highlights physical therapy. And we know that although mental health gets the bulk of the press in research, the number one expense for national defense and veterans affairs in terms of health care is physical. And I'm sure it's the same here. It's still physical health. That's the number one expense. We do have uh, some close links with the USVA and the, the Department of Defense in terms of research and programming. We also work with the King's College Center for Military Health Research in the UK, the Center for Military and Veteran Health in Australia, Otago University in New Zealand, who has a military and veteran stream, and the Department of Defense in the Netherlands. Uh, we're reaching out across, across the world, but what uh, we've all agreed to starting, in principle anyways, is to start sharing methodologies so that we can imp- compare results internationally as to what's happening. So there are unique pieces for each country, but it's also important that we are able to compare and contrast what's going on. So we only started in 2010. (laughs) We've been very busy. And, uh, you know, it was really important for us to get buy-in at the federal level for us, and because military health care is federally run. This is a picture of myself and the associate director of the Institute, Dr. Stephanie Belanger, with our minister of... um, National Defense, the Honorable Peter McKay. So he's the equivalent of your Secretary of Defense. Um, they, he and the Minister of Veterans Affairs do come to our conference every year and give us very good support, uh, morale. They don't, I don't want you to think they give us money. They don't. <laughs> uh, but they give us really good moral support. Um, we, and what we did very consciously, and this started partially with the Canadian Physiotherapy Association because I was the president at the time when we started, but also because Michael Brennan, who's the CEO, has a particular passion for this and, in fact, sits on our board of directors for the Institute. But we started linking with the professional associations because we thought if we're doing all this great research and people are transi- transitioning out into the civilian world Civilian practitioners need to know what's going on. So we now have, starting, starting with Canadian Physio Association and the Canadian Association of Occupational Therapists, we've now got the Canadian Medical Association on board, psychology, psychiatry, um, a number of them on board as supporters of ours. We do work really closely with military and veterans charitable foundations to help raise money for research. Uh, the Royal Canadian Legion, which is the largest veterans organization in Canada. And just to show you that uh, we, we really take the definition of health in the broadest sense of the word, so a complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being. Uh, we were invited to become a member of the Congress of the Social Sciences and Humanities because we do actually have people in literature and drama and history doing work on reintegration, testimony of war, things like that that's really critical to people um, getting back into life. So funding and sustainability, we're not yet sustainable. Uh, we're working hard at it. My university believed in this project, thankfully, and was able to give us some seed funding. We do operationalize some contracts for the federal government to um, link them with the academic community in a timely manner to get questions asked, so that's good. What was really heartening for us, though, is the uh, researcher resources that, that researchers brought forward to the table. Who They basically said, look, I've got grant money to do this. Just allow me access to the populations. We'll add it in. So that was wonderful to see. 
For the long-term health, we do have four research chairs now related to this um, institute, which we're very proud of. Uh, four exist specifically because of the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research, and two more in the country are related very prominently. Two are on physical rehab, two are on trauma medicine, and two are on men mental health. So um, I think it's, it's pretty telling where the research is. We rely on philanthropy, and we rely on industry partnerships. So we have brought some industries to the table and continue to foster those relationships. Something that's really exciting for us is just about three weeks ago, we, were, we announced the uh, Wounded Warriors Doctoral Scholarship. So this is a charitable organization in Canada that raises money to support military and families, and they typically do events. But they wanted to do something that they saw as sustainable in building the future, so they came to us with a scholarship proposal. And so we received $400,000 from them for doctoral scholarships uh, over the next few years. So it's a really nice legacy message for both them and us, but also to help us build the next generation of researchers in this area. And um, I know Helen's hoping to apply for it, so <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, just to give you an idea of the areas, the broad areas of research, as I've alluded to, mental health and treatments, physical health and rehab, social health and well-being, transition, novel technologies, because there's some amazing technologies coming out of um, the war, occupational health, and gender differences in health care. And I think that's been brought to highlight a bit because we in Canada we've had women in combat roles since the late 80s. So I was the, when I was a ship's navigator, that had been considered a combat role, and I was in the first class that had women in it. So that was in uh, 88. And, uh, but I know it's new for the U.S., and so gender differences are very, uh, especially in combat, are very apparent in response to things. Uh, we know, for instance, that the in Canada, our suicide rate for regular force male personnel is the same as the general population, but for regular force female personnel is higher than the general population. Our education program, we have built a, a webinar-based, very successful pan-Canadian graduate course that is accepted by all our partner universities. It started last year and will continue. And uh, our plan is to build a full pan-Canadian graduate program with a focus in military and veteran health within five years, uh, master's and doctoral. We've got our doctoral scholarships. We've been able to help some master's students with, um, particularly master's of public health, with placements. And we also help uh, medical residents, military medical residents, so they get accepted into med school, they get accepted into the military. Four years later, they come out with a commission and they know nothing about the military <laughs> because they've been in med school the whole time. And so we help them with, they have to do a research project, so we're able to help them with their research project focusing on the military to get them more familiar as well. Uh, so in terms of knowledge translation, which is where the journal falls in, our knowledge translation needs are enormous. And it's very easy to get the information back to the military because you can order people to know about it. That's a good system. I like it. But um, And in Veterans Affairs, it, it will trickle down as well because we have ministerial support, so it will come down through the whole department. But the trickier part is getting the, the information into the hands of researchers and particularly clinicians who don't know or understand the, the particular needs of veterans and their families. Um, so I think what we've probably focused on really well is uh, what I'd call knowledge translation products. Uh, so we have a big conference every year, the Military and Veteran Health Research Forum, coming up on our fourth year. We have sold out every year that we've had it, and it's been very, very successful for us. 
We have books. These are the covers, um, two of the books. This, these two books up top are available for free download on our website if you want to see the research in its entirety. Uh, this book is, uh, we've gone to a, a different publisher and they're not willing to let us publish it for free, but, um, but it will be coming out this year as well. Uh, we have a very comprehensive website, a comprehensive researcher database. We present unique funding opportunities, and in fact, all of the DOD funding opportunities come up on our website. But this special edition, that this special edition of the APTA Journal, I think is is going to be critical at our next conference to show how important physical therapy is and rehab in particular. And highlighting this on an international scale is tremendous for us. I think this is just. I can't tell you how excited we are about it and look forward to highlighting it in November at our conference. Um, so I've alluded to some of the things that we've offered the research community, and there's our website if you want it. But I think what we've also offered the government really is an unprecedented link with the academic community, uh, a venue or a method to highlight the excellent knowledge they do. Because it's not just a one-way street. Um, you know, you talk about the advanced practice physical therapy for the American military. It's the same in Canada. And when I came out of the Canadian military, uh, it was a bit of a shock to me to go to the civilian system where I couldn't do everything I had been used to doing. Um, so all of my early research was around the advanced practice role, which people thought was, wow, how did you figure that out? And I was, that's just what we did in the military. So it's a lot of it is a two-way street learning um, two-way street. And I will tell you that their health system, so we have 13 provincial and territorial health systems and the military system. The military system is the most comprehensive. So they pay for all your drugs, all your therapy, which provincial systems don't pay for. And it still costs, even when age adjusted, costs less per capita than any other health system in Canada. So they're doing something right. Um, and it, again, it can be a lesson learned for the civilian population. We've also helped them, uh, the recognition of their work and the Im implication of their work on all first responders, so who are in similar situations, as well as humanitarians who go into situations that, like the military goes into, and all Canadians. So when you look at um, the advances in trauma medicine, that has an impact in emergency rooms everywhere uh, when you come home to get better care. Uh, and, we've, and we've also offered them a rapid turnaround for their research needs. So that's basically setting the stage for the Canadian um, context. I'm going to shamelessly plug our conference, the 25th to the 27th of November. We're going to have a, a special display booth of the journal, and I understand Lieutenant Colonel Childs will be, oh, Lieutenant Colonel Childs, sorry, Canadian, uh, will be joining us as well to speak about uh, the journal. So uh, that's everything I have to say. I'm going to let Helen take it now. Well, hello. I'm the lone occupational therapist. Today I'm going to be talking to you about occupational therapy, its core concepts, and how we can integrate those into a military context. I'm going to challenge somebody in the audience out there to please count how many times you hear the word occupation or occupational. Um, I'm an extremely vain occupational scientist, so we tend to grasp onto research terms and concepts and just plug occupation right before it. So you're going to hear that word over and over again as I go through my 20-minute uh, presentation. So at the end of this, you're going to be introduced to occupational therapy and uh, its scope of practice. You're going to hear an outline of the occupational therapy core concepts 
You're also going to be, I'm going to be talking about uh, the current status of occupational therapy in Canada and some of the critical issues that we're going to face as we go into this military uh, population. I'm also going to provide an overview of how occupational therapy skill can be used within three distinct military populations. Have you counted yet? No? Okay. So let's first talk about occupational therapy and its background. I'll do this briefly. Uh, Canadian occupation, uh, occupational therapists have strong historical ties to the Canadian military. Like physiotherapy, uh, occupational therapists were heavily involved and highly valued in the rehabilitation of uh, returning uh, World War I and World War II veterans. By the 1950s, however, there was a, we saw a huge um, number of occupational therapists leaving the military, and the numbers dwindled. Currently, there are no uniformed occupational therapists in the Canadian forces, and there's only four permanent Canadian force occupational therapists, meaning they're just, um, they're not uniformed and they're civilian. I believe some of them are contracted. Um, like I was on the military base. So, what is occupational therapy? It's a healthcare profession founded on the knowledge that engaging in meaningful occupations promotes health and well being. It's considered an art and a science, helping people to do the day to day activities that they find meaningful. Um, in Canada, there's an emphasis on practicing occupational therapy with a social justice slant, and we'll get to that in a, bit, in a little bit. Occupational therapy, like physiotherapy, um, crosses physical mental health boundaries. Um, we work with a biopsychosocial model, um, which basically means that we work um, in a with holistic care that involves physical, psychological, emotional, and uh, the social issues that are usually associated with disability and functioning. <coughs> Spirituality, or finding meaning in everyday life, is an integral part of the Canadian holistic model. Please do not ask me questions about it or how we get that. That is a whole slide onto itself. Occupational therapy is employed like physiotherapy with a public and private organizations. We're self-employed as well. It's important in this context to know that occupational therapists do work in acute care settings and psychiatric units. In order to utilize occupational therapy skills uh, correctly, we do need to know their core concepts. I'm sure that many of you are working right now with occupational therapists, but it's always good to kind of review what these concepts are. So as we start developing the occupational therapy guidelines working within the military population, we can kind of get it right the first time. The first one is occupation. I got a number of laughs as I started on the military base in Alberta every time I used the word occupation. In the military, let's just say it means to seize and control an area by military force. <laughs> so obviously that is not what I was talking about. But I was happy to have the attention because I was the only one there. But uh, in lay language or on the street, occupation is um, understood as paid work. We see occupation in a much, much broader sense. Uh, we see it as um, occupation. It includes all the day-to-day -day activities that enable people to sustain themselves to contribute to their life and their family, and to participate in a broader society. So, obviously, this is a huge area, and it's multifaceted. So how do we hone in on this? We've developed um, categorizations, pretty obvious, self-care, productivity, and leisure. Self-care can be functional mobility, communication, home management, personal hygiene. Uh, it can be a military person putting their uniform on in the morning and heading to the mess hall for 
uh, for breakfast with their comrades. Productivity includes paid and unpaid work. It can be listening to sonar um, for enemy submarines or practicing in the physical fitness test at the military gym. Uh, Leisure activities include socializing, outdoor activities, games, and sports. And you can kind of envision, you've probably seen tremendous amount of media displaying infantry personnel sitting on the back of a light-armored vehicle playing cards. That would be what leisure would look like. Occupation happens in context. And so we look at a person, how a person does occupation in self-care, productivity, and leisure within an environment. Obviously, you've probably seen your little fellow OT working away at, in the bathrooms or <laughs> helping put raised toilet seats in or in the bedroom, um, you know, helping with sit-to-stand with bedside rails. And this is very, obviously, very important. And this alters the physical environment. But we are extremely well-trained in looking at the institutional, the cultural, and the social elements of the environment where occupations happen. So everyone knows that steep slopes Um, from the built environment can create access barriers, but also inadequate policies, procedures, standards can create barriers, such as wait times, or if you don't meet a criteria for that public um, housing, that's that's a barrier to occupation. Also, social barriers such as negative attitudes um, to disability can isolate people. For example, this can be seen with the the stigma that military members experience while dealing with depression or post-traumatic stress. So as you can see, occupation is a function or fit or lack of fit between what the person is able to do, the demands of a particular occupation, and the environment in which that occupation is performed. So in addressing occupation in a military context, Occupational therapists must therefore attend to the dynamic relationship between the person, the occupation, and the environment. Before anyone can start talking about assessments and treatments, which we do very well in the Occupational Therapy Association, for the military population, any population for that matter, we really first have to evaluate needs. The concept of occupational needs is used in the discipline of occupational science, which is what I'm in, and the profession of occupational therapist, uh, to ensure that the researchers and the therapists focus on the occupation of the individual as they develop programs and interventions. We all have occupational needs. We have the need to choose daily occupations, to participate in them, to have a balance of them, and to engage in personally meaningful occupations. Hope you don't think that sounds too hokey. When a person or a population is unable to choose, to participate, to find balance, or to engage in the occupations that they want, unmet needs happen. So let's talk a little bit about each one of these three that I saw as I worked with veterans, young veterans who had transitioned out of the military, young veterans, who, um, older veterans who have gone into their late 80s and 90s, and also young military uh, men and women who had just recently come back from Afghanistan who had severe injuries. Being posted to a military base, preparing for war, changing military positions, as Dr. Childs here will be doing soon, becoming ill or grieving the loss of a comrade are some military examples. It occurs when the person's normal pattern of occupational engagement um, is just disrupted It's usually temporary, and um, appropriate rehabilitation supports can usually correct it, and oftentimes the person has an improved level of occupational functioning. 
by the end of it. An extreme example of this that you can see is in the case of retired Master Corporal Paul Franklin. In Canada, he is seen as a, a true hero. He, he severed both his legs during an explosion device attack in Afghanistan in 2006 after tremendous perseverance on the part of Master Corporal Franklin and his family and a huge amount of specialists. He now is co-founder of the Northern Alberta Amputee Program, the Franklin Foundation. He's a motivational speaker, and he's published his own book. So as you can see, that he, he himself has said that he is, has a higher level of occupational functioning now. Occupational deprivation is the state in which a person is unable to do what is necessary and meaningful in their lives, during, uh, lives due to external restrictions. I personally saw this as I saw young uh, men and women coming back from Afghanistan. They were stabilized in, in large military bases and in the local hospital, but then were dispersed back to their families, oftentimes in rural areas. And in Canada, if you know the geography of it, there are some very, very rural areas. And as I went up to visit them, I noticed that they were extremely under-occupied or not occupied. And this led to um, them raising voice, saying that they don't, they're not part of the mainstream, and mainstream for them was being away from their comrades in which they had prepared for war, fought in war, and were hurt and injured during war. Left unresolved, occupational deprivation and disruption can result in secondary psychosocial issues, although this isn't actually research. This is my own personal uh, area, just to let you know. Um, I do see that it, help, it um, could attribute to depression and maladaptive behaviors such as excessive drinking. We can all relate to this. Occupational imbalance, I believe everyone probably is probably over-occupied, but it's also a part of being under-occupied as well, or unoccupied. Um, Canadian Force members who have mental or physical injuries may experience an over-engagement in what I like to call health work. These are members who have residual uh, amputation burns, brain injury, hearing loss, or anxiety. They're just heavily involved in some of, in just a tremendous amount of therapy. Health work is a range of intentional yet institutionally prescribed practices that people must engage in when they're ill or injured to the detriment of other occupations. So they see various um, activities, and they're the people that you'll see in the, their cars going back and forth to various um, specialists. They um, do this and get homework that they have to do in the evenings as well over months and years. Extensive health work involves tremendous effort, endurance, organization, and motivation. And if you have a mental health issue on top of your physical, this is almost impossible. This leaves little energy or time to do any type of meaningful activity, let alone doing things like parenting um, or socializing or re-engaging with your friends. So you know what occupational occupation is and that we have occupational needs in the Canadian Forces. So what's happening now? Currently, occupational therapy in Canada is considered a role four. As you heard previously, we only deploy role through two. Three. 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 Thank you. Um, this means occupational therapy is viewed as a specialized uh, profession whose care is delivered over a long period of time. So the Canadian Forces has told me very specifically that they do not deploy them. Uh, they do not deploy 
uh, Roll 4, so we're not needed um, to wear, we, we're not needed to wear a uniform and be deployed to war. This differs from the influential United States Occupational Therapy Army Medical Specialist Corps, okay, <laughs> who deploy with combat units and are charged with heavy responsibilities, as you heard, mental health, but they also run uh, post-blast concussion and mild traumatic brain injury clinics on forward operating bases in, I believe it was Afghanistan. At present, uh, Canadian Force military members are require, who require occupational therapy are actually sent to civilian businesses uh, that provide short-term rehabilitation, often mostly with regards to home modifications or uh, equipment provision. The intent of the Canadian Forces is to expand this to um, involve every occupational therapist uh, therapy on every military base in Canada. Right now, there is no national guidelines for occupational therapists if they do get onto these bases. Working in a military population is extremely different than working with a civilian population. As I worked on the base and worked with veterans and heard what they had to say, I found that there were four critical issues that have to be considered prior to the national guidelines being developed. I thought I would just highlight these briefly. The first is the current OT mandate. The other issue is the priority of the Canadian forces to rehabilitate those who are injured. Also, the critical issue of the tenant of universality of service and the expectation that injured military members have. I'm not going to read this, but if you want to just glance over it, you're going to notice something, or at least I did as soon as I read it. This is the current mandate for occupational therapists in Canada, for the four that are working in Canada. And if you're anything like me, you're automatically, I'm a vain occupational scientist. I noticed that occupation is not included in the mandate for occupational therapists. This, I think, might have been overlooked. I'm hoping that it has been. Or um, I'm worried that the potential to overlook occupation and the needs of the Canadian forces will happen if we don't include this in the mandate. Um, this needs to be corrected, and I think that an occupational analysis needs to happen first before we develop um, such uh, defined terms already. The second is the principle of universality of service. I'm not sure if anybody else, if anybody's aware of this, but basically, different from civilian populations, the military demands that all military members be able to not only do their primary duty, so such as um, some here, they would their primary duty would be physical therapy, driving a tank or commanding a squadron, they have to be able to be physically and mentally fit at all points in time to do basic military duties. This means, um, I'm not sure of the American one, but this means uh, they have to march 13 kilometers, carrying 80 pounds on their back. They have to be able to pull, uh, uh, sorry, uh, carry and um, carry a body for, I think, 20 meters. They have to be able to carry and fire a gun. If they're not able, able to meet these standards, they can be discharged from the military. This may seem unfair. I have heard it over and over again that it is, but it's absolutely critical to the mission and for the safety of those that are around them. This principle overrides the Canadian human rights, which occupational therapists and I'm sure physical therapists hold very dear to their heart, which is the duty to accommodate anyone who is injured in their workplace. This is very different from the civilian population, where employers must provide accommodation for injury and disability, well, to a reasonable extent, of course. This is a very interesting area of research, and I'm going to be observing with 
delight, I guess you'd have to say, um, as OTs really struggle with this uh, critical issue. The last two, uh, the priority to rehabilitate and the duty to engage. If anyone in the audience has worked with military members, you'll know that most soldiers start their rehabilitation at, um, at the level of function that exceeds the end stage of most civilians. So basically, we got to stay on top of our stuff. Occupational therapists must have a tacit understanding of the CF obligations to provide timely military-focused rehabilitation interspersed with discretionary occupations that meet members' occupational needs. Unlike contracted occupational therapists who are now seeing our military members, we have to be able to provide long-term rehabilitation that extends beyond the physical and into the mental. So, everyone's very well-versed in occupation, occupational needs of, um, of the military, you know what the critical issues are. Well, what does Helen have in store for us for the future? Let's take a look. Military populations that I feel that occupational therapists can help with, um, there's three of them. And this is not unlike other populations or, or subcultures. There's the transient injuries, the members with the severe injuries, and members with permanent injuries. I'd like to look at each one. Transit injuries are those who are experiencing short-term injuries. We heard a lot about the bulk that is seen in the Canadian Forces Rehabilitation Clinics are those that are kind of post-injury, uh, pain, strains, uh, mental and physical fatigue. Occupational therapists that work with this population, would uh, the purpose would be to promote military readiness through occupation and be expected to minimize occupational disruption. Um, let's look at interventions that could eliminate or minimize uh, barriers in the domains of the person, the occupation, and the environment that will reduce the occupational needs of the military members in this population. Within the person domain, um, mental and physical abilities can be improved by schedule, uh, schedule of graded activities. In the environment domain, an occupational therapist could provide in-garrison in assessment focused on the workspace. This is very exciting. I think that occupational therapists could get right out of the clinic on the military bases. And I think that we could do our job in the hangars, in the, um, in the workshops, in the gym, in the gym, in gym, gymnasium, and dare I say, maybe on the, on the range, the fire range? Would that be possible? I don't know. But that would be kind of cool <laughs> to see an occupational therapist out there with their little clipboard and measuring tape out there on the, uh, on the gun range. Um, Canadian Force occupational therapists can assist in assessing whether injured Canadian forces will be, will be able to return safely to their position or in a modified fashion to their original occupation. Within the occupation domain, we would um, assess the work capacity of an injured member in lifting, pushing, pulling, work tolerance, but also look at some of the cognitive and psychosocial issues such as maintaining attention, concentration, and memory. All the things that you need to be safe the second population that we would look at um, is the severely injured. These are the ones who have um, sustained amputations, um, severe burns. Occupational therapists working in this population would be promoting timely progress through occupations, and they'd be expected to decrease occupational deprivation and imbalance. I feel that we could assess um, and treat them, this population, at the acute and the subacute. Stages. So at the, at the acute phase, we can do kind of what you've probably seen in the hospital already, which would be hospital and home visits um, would be a, trap, a top priority in the environment and the occupation. 
Occupational therapists would assess and then order essential equipment, such as wheelchairs, in order to lessen um, dependency. They would coordinate work for home modifications, such as ramps and stair lifts, to reduce lengthy wait times. Occupational therapists would provide graded programs of occupation, focusing on early, I believe it would probably be mostly early self-care interventions. You'd be amazed how humbling it is to work with a 21-year-old veteran or a returning young female from Afghanistan who has been severely injured, and they have just gone from, you know, commanding a a troop of tanks or, um, you know, working um, in the arti- with artillery, then coming back and having to re-educate them on how to use the bathroom. It's a very humbling experience, and I, I don't take it lightly. Um, issues related to the person may begin at the subacute stage. I believe that this, at this stage we could do all the rehabilitation out of the home and out of the hospital and work directly on the base where they can maintain military bonds and associations and decreasing some of the occupational uh, deprivation that I saw with some of the rural veterans and uh, injured uh, military personnel. Some of the treatments would include relaxation techniques, problem solving, uh, stress and anger management, assertiveness training, cognitive behavioral therapy training. In this area, I'm sure others would agree that sleep and pain management is so huge for these, this population. So here, occupations would provide um, advice we do um, sleep training classes, which I've done with veterans before, and we would do habit training. The last um, population is my current area of research. Um, So I have a passion for it, so if I blab, I'll I'll try not to. But this population is um, those who have fully transferred from the Canadian military. They're called veterans in Canada. I know in, in these states they use the word veteran differently. Um, they're CF members who do not return to their former or alternate military position, mostly often because they don't meet that principle of universality of service. Occupational therapists working with this population would help the military personnel transition from military roles to the civilian roles with a new disability. They would be expected to decrease the occupational disruption, deprivation, and imbalance. Vocation and leisure occupations are of critical importance to veterans as they transition into civilian life. Uh, Military specializations such as machine gunner don't really translate as well as physical therapy like Alice was saying that she kind of got into. So occupational therapists would undertake vocational assessments with other uh, specialists, of course, to evaluate aptitudes and interests, work skills to identify suitable employment, they would use questionnaires, real life and simulated workstations and standardized tests, and obviously you probably all know what I'm talking about, which is functional capacity evaluations. The results of this would be to help plan and garrison rehab, to determine whether the CF member has the aptitude and skill for a particular job in the civilian world, or to just to say they need to be re-educated completely and to start into a new um, trade or, I guess, career. So during this presentation, you heard the word occupation quite a bit, and you learned what occupational therapy is, what the scope is, and what are our core concepts. You've learned that occupational need, uh, there's occupational needs with military members, like disruption, deprivation, and imbalance. And along with the current status um, of occupational therapy in the military and some of the critical issues they'll face as they enter this new population, you've also learned that very specific occupational therapy assessments and techniques can be used with three distinct military populations. 
Thank you for listening to the sole occupational therapist in this room and listening to my presentation. And I think I'm open to questions now. Or? Uh, we'll do it as a panel. Oh, okay. All right. Good afternoon. So this is, uh, this is the case that, uh, that we submitted. And really, um, you know, physical therapists in the, in the military do have some advanced clinical uh, privileges. Um, they're not automatic, but, you know, we have the ability to order imaging, uh, some prescribe some medications, order some laboratory tests. And uh, maybe uh, part of that has come about because of our extended physician role and a lot of that during in a combat setting. And so hopefully these cases might uh, give a little bit more of a background of, of how that's uh, evolved. So, um, you know, as the, as the famous uh, young or old uh, gentleman uh, very well-known gentleman on the bottom right there, um, or your left, has alluded to. Uh, probably in the military, you know, we have to be very innovative, uh, and uh, we don't always have all the resources that we need. Um, but really, when there's a need for something, you're you're forced to to find a way of 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 getting it done. So, just to give a little bit of background before I go into these cases. Um, as I mentioned, I, I was deployed for 12 months as a physical therapist. So what happened around 2005 is that traditionally physical therapists had only been uh, at, at, uh, at echelons further back at these combat support hospitals. We started looking at the amount of injuries that were coming out of theater, and roughly 90% of the medical evacuations out of the combat theater were non-battle injuries. And of those non-battle injuries, 80 to 90% or musculoskeletal in nature. So that means that the, the majority of our healthcare uh, focus, even in a combat setting, is our these regular uh, these these injuries that are occurring just uh, just from you know daily activities and being out uh, as a nature of the profession. And so they decided to push physical therapists up towards the front line a little bit more and say, how can we address some of these issues uh, you know up at the front lines as they're occurring rather than waiting for the soldiers to. To, uh, to be evacuated uh, to the next level. So uh, you can see the, that Baghdad there. This is uh, the clinic. I was at a forward operating base. So uh, there's a couple colleagues. At, at, so I had, there was a physical therapist, a dentist, a uh, psychologist, and then two physicians and two physician's assistants that kind of made up the, uh, the, the medical team there. So you see our, our ER, if you will, our trauma room. On the bottom, uh, your left is is our clinic. Uh, so that's where we all saw patients amidst the uh, you know incoming mortar rounds. Uh, you know that would come in every couple of days. And then this was the extent of our uh, advanced imaging, if you will. We had this portable radiology machine. Um, anything else above that would have to go up to the next level of care. And then, oh, and then here's our uh, my humble physical therapy clinic uh, on Fob Falcon. And uh, there's my uh, luxurious exam room. Um, so th- this is the setting. This is, uh, gives you a little bit of, maybe paint a little bit of a picture of uh, where we're seeing uh, patients. So, uh, and the other thing I wanted to, to describe just a little bit to maybe help you understand some, some of what we have to go through in this mental process, uh, this clinical reasoning process, is so this might represent a po- possible interaction between the clinician and the patient, you know, here uh, when, when you're not in a combat setting, got a patient with back pain, and uh, some of the barriers. If you this this pot of gold, if you will, might be where the getting the patient, you know, uh, back to a recovered state. 
and some of the barriers that go along with that. Uh, and so you might not think twice about getting advanced imaging. You know, we, we already know that's a problem here uh, in this country. But some of the barriers that you might consider, maybe your institutional guidelines that are going to guide you to order one thing or, or, or the other. Maybe there's insurance limitations. Maybe you're thinking about the safety of the patient with, uh, you know, radiation. But these might be some of the thoughts that are crossing your mind when you're deciding, do I really need this, this imaging to help me come up uh, with this diagnosis? Uh, but in the in the military setting, or at least in a deployed setting, there's other factors that probably come up first. Uh, you know, the first being that as a, as a physical therapist in my situation, uh, you know, I was considered the musculoskeletal medicine expert. You know, I had a great team of physicians that I worked with, but you know, they're pediatricians. They're you know, they admittedly in the military they just get plugged in. Hey, you're a physician. This is your role. You're deploying, and so they've never worked in this setting with these 18 to 30 year old uh, soldiers with musculoskeletal injuries. So they really rely on the physical therapist uh, heavily for uh, managing you know just your opinion and insight into a lot of these conditions. Um, the first three weeks that I was there and we were doing the, the uh, transition to the, uh, uh, the outgoing unit and I was coming in transitioning to the new unit, um, one of the soldiers had just a routine uh, medical condition that the, he was getting evacuated, I think a fracture or something, it, was a, it, it wasn't a complex fracture, up to the next level of care, the combat support hospital, which is the first level of care where the orthopedic surgeon is. And that involved a convoy just to get the one soldier there. Is a helicopter medical evacuation. Helicopters are, are reserved for, you know, life or limb type uh, issues. So they just took a, a regular convoy up to the hospital, and uh, the convoy was hit by uh, the improvised explosive devices, and one of the soldiers um, died, and it was all for a routine evacuation up to the combat support hospital. And so it really makes... Uh, it, I became, over time, talk about a lot of responsibility, um, you know, the go-to person when they decided, does this patient need to go to the cash? Is it worth the evacuation? Should we get a convoy together? Or is this something that we can manage here? And so, you know, uh, much more than, you know, is MRI or x-ray necessary or all that, I've got to think about, you know, do we really need to send this person up to the cash? Or is this something that I can manage here? Uh, because, you know, the implications of that, of that decision are much more serious. The other thing is there isn't really an MRI in theater. The closest MRI was in Kuwait, so the patient would have to be evacuated to the combat support hospital in the green zone, and then they would be evacuated out to Germany or to Kuwait just for an MRI to give you more information about what you're going to do next. So again, as we've probably all learned, you know, what is this, what, what is the imaging going to tell me? How is that going to change my intervention and what, and what I do? Um, and so a lot of times, you know, you might just skip that and say, how can I get to this, uh, you know, to, to treating the patient? Do I really need this? And when you come from a, uh, uh, when you come from a system of practice for a lot of the physicians where ordering MRIs and x-rays is just kind of a standard of practice, something that you do, thinking outside that box and like, well, wait a second, you know, uh, we, we always order these things. Do we really need them? Uh, it, it's hard to get them to think outside that, you know, that mantra that they've been trained to, uh, to practice in. And here you can see on the next slide, uh, again, gives you a little bit of a background. So the green zone, it's a little bit of a busy slide, but the, the thick red arrows. So I was at Fob Falcon, as you can see there, it's about a kilometer, a square kilometer. Um, the part that's blown uh, down there, the, the, 
we have a big ammunition supply point where we store all of our ammunition, and a mortar round came in and actually hit that, so all of the all of our ammunition cooked off, and uh, for there was a 24-hour period where it kind of destroyed our uh, our own fob was uh, the walls and everything were destroyed by our own uh, uh, ammunition. Incidentally, I didn't we didn't know what was going on. I was in my room, and all of a sudden, it felt like we were just uh, this is on auto. Uh, Getting hit with, uh, you know, with all kinds of rounds. We didn't know what was going on. Anyways, that's that's the fob there, and it's, it's on the outskirts of Baghdad. You can see the green zone. That's that's the place where the combat support hospital is. That's roughly a 30, 45 minute convoy um, from the outskirts. There's a lot of different little fobs scattered all around, but the uh, the green zone is that central place. That's where the airplanes land, flying in and out of uh, to Kuwait, or they would go out to Germany. So that that's what the uh, um, the convoy w- would entail. So with, with that background, hopefully painting a picture of you know, where I was and, and all that was entailed, I'll go over a few of the cases of some of these patients that, uh, uh, that I saw when I was over there. So, uh, and this is one of the cases. Uh, I'll go over all the cases that are uh, in the article, and then I have a couple uh, extra in there as well. This is a 38-year-old Hispanic male. He was actually the physician assistant for one of the uh, units, and so they typically go out on the patrols with the soldiers, so you've got medical care right there in case something happens. And he stepped wrong. It, it, sometimes with all the adrenaline, and these soldiers have a lot of gear on, and uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to always establish the specific mechanism of injury, but you know, from uh, uh, what he was able to recall, he stepped wrong, he twisted his ankle, it was painful, but he was able to keep walking on it, and about 30 minutes later, he got to a point where uh, he just couldn't anymore, and so he was put in a vehicle and uh, brought back to our aid station uh, at the forward operating base. So... Uh, the physician that saw him there, the initial triage, he was able to take a few steps, uh, though it was uh, pretty painful. There was some effusion, I and mean, it looked like a typical lateral ankle sprain uh, that, uh, you know, if you work in an orthopedic outpatient setting, uh, you know, is, is, is quite common. Um, and so they ordered uh, an x-ray, and uh, this was the report, possible avulsion of the medial malleolus, but otherwise unremarkable. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if they used the Ottawa clinical decision rules or not there. He was provided crutches, a compression wrap. There wasn't a huge rush to get him out of there. It didn't look like anything was serious, but uh, usually they'd come and see me uh, afterwards. So two days later, this one had gone down. He came in uh, to see me. And again, you can see a little bit of a close-up there. There's nothing really that pops out as anything significant or other than an ankle sprain uh, when you look at this. So he came in with crutches, putting some weight on his, uh, putting some weight on his right lower extremity. So he was able to, uh, to to take a couple steps, but you could tell that it was very uh, painful. There was some moderate joint effusion still, some ecchymosis. And so when you look at the differential diagnosis, uh, these are some things that he's jumping on me. Sorry, um, these are some things that come to mind. Uh, I haven't been able to rule these out. Obviously, some might be up. Uh, higher on my list of uh, uh, suspicion index, um, but I wanted to really rule out a fracture. And again, I'm thinking, is this something I can manage here, or is this something that needs to be sent out? And obviously, initially, as an ankle sprain, this is probably something I can take care of here. Here's a little bit more of the physical exam. Uh, so he's tender, which is to be expected. You know, it's difficult to really tell the extent of the sprain because uh, ligamentous stress test testing is a little bit inconclusive. But then his squeeze test was positive. You know, we're always taught to palpate the joint above and below the area of symptoms. And uh, so as I get up there and I palpate the adjacent structures, um, 
there's some tenderness up on the, uh, uh, on the proximal fibula. And again, these are the other considerations, you know. If we keep him here, he's got to be able to walk around on this terrain, even on the fob. You know, there's, he's got to wear all of his gear still. Um, so, um, you know, do I need to send him up to the cache? The other thing is, the orthopedic surgeon at the cache is in the OR uh, dealing with limb amputations, life and left uh, limb stuff, almost... Uh, you know, uh, that's primarily what he does. So if someone's going to come up there with some of these issues that aren't as urgent, uh, he'll, they'll probably see the physical therapist at the cash, or they'll probably just be evacuated out of theater. So after palpating that proximal fibula, if you can see the uh, image on, uh, you know, the initial images, they hadn't really uh, imaged the area of the knee. And so I ordered an x-ray uh, uh, to, to really cover that knee region. And at this time, the report came back, and you could see that spiral fracture in the proximal fib, uh, fibula, as well as a fracture of the medial malleolus, which is actually a lot more apparent uh, now you can see it there a little bit. Again, these x-rays are taken with a portable x-ray machine, so they're not like the best quality, but that, we're still able to see that. So uh, amazing new fracture. This is a result of an external rotation injury. Um, and, you know, these can be mi missed easily if you don't look at, you know, the area above and below the area of symptoms to really rule that out. And they do have some significance because that has the potential to really make the joint unstable. And so surgical uh, intervention is required uh, in a lot of these cases. So what I did is I actually, uh, you know, emailed the images to the orthopedic surgeon at the cache just to confirm. And he agreed, you know, we should uh, get, get the soldier out of there um, so we made this decision to evacuate him and send him back, you know, to Germany and then the United States for uh, surgical fixation. Uh, the next case, 21-year-old, uh, he uh, fell while playing basketball. So, you know, they do have a little bit of uh, uh, unwind time, if you will, to play sports and work out and exercise, uh, that type of thing. He came in, pain in the posterior lateral aspect of his elbow. Uh, he was unsure if he had actually landed directly on the elbow or if he had fallen out on a, uh, you know, a, a foosh injury, out, fallen an outstretched hand. And, uh, but anyways, we, he was triaged and then sent directly to see me. It, it, we got to a point where anything that was orthopedic that came into the trauma room, uh, you know, I was kind of called in just to, to evaluate and take a look. He was unable to extend his elbow, uh, because of the pain. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, he guarded, definitely guarded against it. He didn't really have any other symptoms up in his neck, uh, shoulder, or the wrist or hand. There was definite effusion. Um, so as I examined uh, the elbow, uh, you know, just that, that uh, inability to extend the elbow was really probably the sign that, uh, you know, made me think we need to evaluate this a little bit further and get an x-ray. As a 50% likelihood of uh, fracture with the elbow extension test, the inability. Uh, and you can rule out a fracture uh, with full extension of the elbow uh, with a sensitivity of 98.4%, according to one study. Um, so, again, here's uh, some of the differentials that are going through my mind. And again, you can't really rule any of these out. So again, when you establish a hypothesis, you start working through, okay, what, which of these diagnoses can I rule out? So if you look closely at the uh, x-ray, at least from these views here, it's hard to really see anything. Um, and if you look real closely at the radio head, and, and, and I could only tell this really because I, I'll, I'll show you the next view, but there's a little bit of a displacement uh, on that on, as you're looking at the superior third there, 
of the uh, radio head. And so here you can see it a lot better. See the uh, lateral aspect of the radio head. And so that's a fairly significant uh, fracture. And so again, my, you know, what goes through my mind is, okay, how would we manage this? Is this something that would, in the best interest of the patient, would need surgery for uh, stability, or is this something that I can manage here? Uh, because if he's just going to go back and, and he's going to get a cast or it's going to be managed conservatively, we can do that here. The soldiers can be pulled off the line. They can do a lot of administrative uh, jobs there on the FOB. And so if, if uh, you know, you have to consider that if they're going to be in a cast, we can do that. We can take care of that here. But really, you want to do what's best for the patient. So uh, there's a classification system for radio head fractures. And typically, the, the First class is managed conservatively, and then you know the more complex, especially in younger uh, patients, is is probably managed uh, with surgery. So again, I I, uh, I consulted with the orthopedic surgeon. I sent him the images, and uh, he recommended that we send the patient out for surgery. Uh, sent him to Germany uh, just because of his age and uh, you know the extent of the fracture. However, he um, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, so so we put put him in a cast here, consulted the orthopedic surgeon in Germany. He got there, he saw the orthopedic surgeon there, and he actually they actually recommended not to do surgery. The thing is, you know, he was really motivated and wanted to come back, but the orders had said, you know, send him out. He can't come back. We can't. There's no way for him to have conservative management there. But I had told him that I could see him there and he could stay. So he actually told his case manager that, who was kind of surprised. Again, this is very early in the stage of having physical therapists up at the front line, so a lot of, uh, you know, the system wasn't really well established. And uh, so she sent me an email, and, uh, you know, I confirmed that. He came back a couple weeks later, and we actually kept him there, managed him, put, uh, you know, took his arm out for some mobility, uh, took radiographs every, uh, you know, uh, at six weeks again. At 14 weeks, he was able to do 10 push-ups without pain, so we were able to leave him there, and he did some other administrative work. But, you know, every time you lose a soldier, you don't get another one back, and so you've got, uh, it just puts a lot of stress on, on the soldiers that are going out on convoys. You take, you know, one person here, one person here, and now they're doing the job of, uh, you know, that, that typically required of a full squad with a lot less personnel. So again, you want to do what's best for the soldier, but if it's someone that we can manage here that can stay back and maybe do some more administrative uh, tasks in the FOB, then that certainly helps. Uh, and then here's another case. Uh, I mean, this one's pro- probably pretty obvious uh, mechanism of injury. So he's uh, hammering in stakes with a sledgehammer, and uh, he hits his left foot. He comes in. He's not able to bear any weight uh, in his left foot. So he's triaged, given some crutches. He's got edema, ecchymosis along the uh, dorsal midfoot. So the three-view radiograph uh, of the foot. Again, you know, here, here's the image you can see right here, pretty clear. Uh, third and fourth metatarsal fractures. But again, you know, this is a very obvious diagnosis, obvious mechanism of injury. But the thought, you know, is, okay, so what do I do with this person? Can, th- can this heal conservatively and I can manage them here? Or, you know, should we send this person out, have them go on a convoy, back to the cache, and send them out, uh, out to theater? So, uh, you know, I, I uh, dialogued with the orthopedic surgeon. He said, you know, that looks like it's pretty well aligned. He sh- that should just heal uh, with some immobilization. And, uh, but before I was there, every- anybody that had fractures was sent up to the cache just to get a cast. And so we got, uh, you know, a cast saw, and we had all the materials there, and we just went ahead and casted him. And there you can see the... Com- uh, the comparison at six months, so he was there the whole time. Uh, there's healing there. 
he didn't have to leave. He, it was, this was only three months into his deployment. So again, he didn't have to leave the combat theater. Uh, we were able to manage him there, and, and he was actually quite happy for that. I mean, some patients are, are happy to go back early, but there's some that actually you know, don't want to leave and uh, want to stay with their unit. Uh, and then here's another case, a 24-year-old Hispanic with an air assault unit. So air assault uh, units typically do their raids from helicopters. So hel- helicopters go in, land, and, and that's kind of what they're trained to do. Um, so he twisted his ankle on a mission, came in to see me, very tender in the lateral part uh, of the midfoot. Um, he was able to bear a little bit of weight, but it was very painful, obviously uncomfortable. Uh, so again, a three-view series of the foot there. I don't know if you can look. You can see, spot the pathology uh, on the lateral part of the midfoot there. So he had a, uh, a fracture of the fifth metatarsal, a Jones fracture. So we managed him conservatively, immobilization, uh, casted limited weight-bearing, reassessed the status every four weeks. Um, But he had adequate union after three months and able to walk without any pain after four months. Uh, But he didn't have to leave the combat theater early uh, because we were able to manage him. So again, a a lot of these uh, conditions that... Uh, you know, would come come to a physical therapist in this setting and you have to make some of these decisions. I mean, you know, what do you do with this? It's not like I see this on a regular basis in, uh, in my clinic. And uh, the PA walks down and is like, you know, what should I do here? And uh, I've got to go and look it up to and figure I mean, you know, do you drain this? Uh, do you just let it go? And, and uh, so, you know, I, luckily I can email, you know, I, I emailed a different orthopedic surgeon that I knew and was like, what would you do in this and case? And he said, well, you know, just... Leave it alone. If you, know, if you drain it, it's probably just going to come back. And, and, and so we left it alone. It was uncomfortable for a while, but uh, you know, after several weeks, it uh, dissipated. And I don't know what it was. Uh, it was an infection. It just kind of, he just showed up and was like, hey, look at my elbow. Uh, so, and uh, other things, you know, diagnoses are, are obvious, but I mean, here, obviously, a, um, so this is a machine gunner. He's carrying a big heavy weight over his right shoulder. So this, uh, you know, rucksack palsy, a long thoracic nerve uh, palsy, um, it, I mean, it fit, fits the diagnostic criteria and everything just clearly. You can see this. He, he, his complaint was, I go in and take a shower and I can't lift the brush up over, you know, I can't get my hand up to my head. More than pain, really, he had this weakness. And so, again, uh, do, you, do I send this person out? Um, or can I manage them here? And before they had physical therapists there, these are all the types of injuries that, you know, as a pediatrician or as, as, as another clinician there, you're like, this isn't my realm. They need an orthopedic intervention. And so you would evacuate these patients out. And these are the, the you know, the, the folks that we were able to keep there on the FOB and manage them. You know, we know that these uh, injuries just take some time to resolve. These uh, nerve palsies take some time to resolve. And so we, we work with the patient there, but he's not really going to get uh, any better care or different care, I guess, if, if he left uh, the theater and went back to Germany or the United States. And then some really unique considerations. I don't know if, you know, we, we have mortar rounds coming in on a regular basis. And uh, so, you know, soldiers just walking around the FOB and a mortar round comes in. And so you get, get hit with shrapnel. And, uh, you know, what do you do when, when you see this? I don't know if you can see the arm really well. There's little, uh, little pieces of shrapnel there in the elbow if you look closely. And, uh, you know, is this something that needs to be taken out? Do you leave these in? What's best for the patient? But, you know, a- after being there a while, you just kind of learn that the-, the surgeons don't really pull these out. You just leave them in there. I mean, it, it causes a lot more damage to get in there and start exploring uh, to pull some of these out. So a lot of these patients just 
until it becomes a more significant problem, you usually just treat them conservatively and you just leave the shrapnel in there. In the last case, uh, I finish up. This case wasn't in, th- in theater, but I think a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, the, the underlying theme here is we have these advanced practice privileges and we can order some imaging. Um, but a lot of this, you know, maybe develops from the need to do so as a physician extender in some of these roles where we are uh, the expert, if you will, with some of these musculoskeletal conditions. And then they translate uh, uh, back to our regular practice, uh, you know, in these military hospitals where we also have these privileges. So this was the last case uh, that's, that, that was in this uh, uh, the special edition case series. And uh, this is a civilian, so this was seen uh, not, not in theater, but um, again, highlights a differential diagnosis problem uh, or, or progression, if you will. So a 21-year-old uh, African-American female, another colleague actually saw her, uh, one of the other authors on here. She worked nights at a convenience store. So she had been seen three times in the adolescent clinic uh, in the last month with uh, the focus on her knee pain. That was really her primary complaint. And she'd uh, been referred to physical therapy with a diagnosis of patella tendonitis, so there was no imaging of the pelvis or hip at this, at this time. Um, and she didn't really have a mechanism of injury uh, when she came to the physical therapist, this is what her body chart looked like. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So there was some knee complaints, but really when you asked a little bit more and kind of dug in there, uh, the hip was bothering her, seemed to be her, uh, the uh, biggest problem. This is some of the uh, history, um, which probably ended up being significant, uh, Difficult bowel movement leading to a bowel contrast study, which was negative. I mean, it was significant enough where she had sought care and they'd ordered this study for it. Uh, she couldn't really get more than an hour of sleep at night because the, the this lingering pain that would just keep her awake. Uh, there's some, other, as you can see, there are some other things that she noted on her health screening form and some of the aggravating factors. Uh, so a lot of this is pointing to maybe something a little bit more systemic. Uh, it's just a little bit vague but it doesn't really fit with this patellar tendonitis or tendinopathy diagnosis. So the physical therapist, you know, observed uh, the hip and the pelvis. And again, the pain was antalgic, but it seemed that, you know, they were able to clear the knee actually pretty well without causing any pain. It was when uh, the hip was moved passively, passively that she started to have pain in all directions. Uh, and this is the first time someone had actually evaluated her pelvis and actually, you know, got her down into her undergarments to look at uh, the pelvis. And you could definitely see that there was, uh, you know, something even just visually looking at that didn't look right uh, in the pelvis. And so there was this fullness in the right anterior lateral pelvic region. Um, so, again, the differentials that come to, uh, uh, to mind as you're thinking uh, through this uh, her initial screening strategy involved getting some plain film radiographs and then follow that with the appropriate screening laboratory studies and ESR, you know, a CBC, uh, and then maybe some advanced uh, imaging. And so what happened is, uh, and again, this patient had already been seen three or four times by, you know, uh, her, her, her health care provider referred for patellar tendinopathy, and so the x-ray uh, and then the subsequent MRI showed a highly aggressive uh, destructive lesion uh, involved in the superior pubic ra- uh, ramus and the right acetabulum. Um, a Codman's triangle, so this was the report. A Codman's triangle was present along the medial surface of the right ilium with aggressive periosteal reaction. 
And so the initial differential diagnosis from the radiologist was uh, telangiatic osteosarcoma, an infection. Uh, so then when they got the follow-on MRI, they uh, saw that the lytic bone lesion had completely destroyed the right superior pubic ramus, and the uh, ultimate uh, diagnosis was a malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor, which is a class of sarcoma. Um, so again, figuring out that something isn't quite right here, we need to explore a little bit further, making the features fit, and uh, you know, determining, okay, there's a little bit more to this picture. Is this really a patellar tendinopathy or, or something else? So... <laughs> Really, to uh, to summarize all this, th- there is strong clinical skills, and uh, you know, there I know that there's a debate about uh, you know whether physical therapists should have imaging privileges, should they have these advanced privileges. If you work in the military healthcare system and you've come up in the military healthcare system, you know, I went to school uh, through the Baylor program and all that. That's all I've ever known, um, and I think you know the debate a lot of times is is broken up into. Uh, you know, whether we should have it or not. And I think, you know, probably a more accurate debate is, you know, whether we're using it excessively and appropriately or not using it uh, appropriately. Because clearly, uh, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, ha- having properly trained, even appropriate physical therapists uh, in these settings, that we actually utilize imaging a lot less. Uh, and our accuracy is, uh, is much higher. And, uh, that, so all of this may be because, uh, you know, just uh, of this need of our uh, need to innovate maybe in combat settings of look, making the decision instead of uh, determining the cost, instead of determining whether the insurance is going to pay for it or to satisfy the patient, you know, do I really need to order this? What's the, what are the ramifications of ordering an, imaging, uh, 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 an image that isn't needed in this patient and sending them on a, on a dangerous uh, convoy? Um, so just and just to, to note that you know these additional privileges are not necessarily automatic. They they come after some time, and you get credentialed uh, to have these privileges. But I think that you know um, if used uh, appropriately and in the right context, um, that uh, you know they can be very valuable and they can be very helpful. Um, and, and maybe our ability to use them appropriately has been defined you know over time from this necessity. Of, uh, of of needing those those tools, and that is it. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for uh, staying towards the uh, towards the end. We'll have a panel session after um, this talk, and hopefully, have some uh, some good Q and A. Um, uh, before introducing this particular uh, this particular study, I was uh, reminded when Alice was talking about the uh, you know the, the family related uh, integration issues. You know when you're when you're uh, we we had terrific connectivity. I mean at least for being in the middle of nowhere. I mean it wasn't uh, download speeds like we have uh, in the states, but still very good connectivity. And so you're routinely skyping with your family. And Dan uh, may or may not have had as good a connectivity then, but. Um, it was at least once a week, um, you know, I'd be Skyping with my kids and the, you know, the, uh, the rocket attack alarms would, would go off and it'd be very obvious to my kids that there was this loud noise <laughs> in the background and it just became kind of customs like, sorry guys, I got to go jump in the bunker, hang tight, you know, and, um, and you, you sort of, when you're there, you kind of, it's just a way of life. I mean, it, you, you sort of, it, it scares the daylights out of you for like a week or two. Um, and then it's just a couple time a week sort of thing that happens, and it's just like going to dinner, you jump in the bunker. I mean, it's just an activity that you become accustomed to. 
And then, and then it's only when you actually get back after like six months or so, you go, how did I ever become accustomed to that? I mean, and so it's just interesting, the psychology of your, of your mind where you just learn to cope with things that you're uh, not used to coping with. And then there was another really interesting one. I was buried into my uh, Skype talking to my kids. It was in the middle of the night. I, I worked a, a more U.S.-friendly schedule just so I could kind of keep one foot back in the States in terms of everything going on in the States. So uh, I tended to work through the middle of the night. I'm, I'm in the, the uh, cafeteria, which is where the best Wi-Fi was. And I'm just in a you know, really engaged discussion with, uh, um, I think, with my wife at the time. And it just became apparent to me all of a sudden that there was this big entourage. Well, I, I kind of ignored it. Those of you who, when I get focused on something, I'm, I'm really focused. And, and I finally turn around because I realize this entourage is not going to leave. And I look around and President Obama was standing like right there. He was waiting for me to get off my Skype to at least acknowledge that he had come by for a visit. <laughs> And um, he just happened to be making, the, he didn't come to see me, he just happened to be, be making the rounds, and I was, you know, one of the only fools awake in the middle of the night that he might come say hello to. So, in any event, I had a very awkward moment with my wife letting her know that I needed to go. <laughs> and uh, so, in any event, those sorts of things kind of happen um, uh, in, in, when, you're, when you're deployed. Um, this particular study was not one that was done in theater, but rather is a uh, prevention, um, a large prevention trial that we did at Fort Sam Houston um, with um, uh, healthy soldiers um, in uh, an effort to really try to design a preventative program uh, for, uh, for low back pain. And so um, one of the secondary analyses from this particular study is actually in the, uh, in the special issue, but I thought it'd be helpful just to present um, uh, briefly just the overall results um, of this particular uh, trial because it's now uh, completed after um, a four or five year uh, episode. Um, this study was funded through the um, uh, congressionally directed uh, medical research program and uh, which is um, really one of the, the major oversight organizations that oversees a lot of the uh, DOD related uh, research uh, funding. Um, uh, we don't need to uh, review the, the problems of, of back pain. It's just as big a deal, if not a bigger deal, inside the Department of Defense as it is uh, outside. Um, and again, it's this non-traumatic, non-battlefield, everyday garden variety back pain that is plaguing um, our healthcare system uh, in terms of disability uh, and, and costs, and certainly a leading factor for uh, disability within the VA uh, system in particular, huge costs uh, of disability. Um, and yet we still have little to no idea how to prevent this problem. Um, we're getting better at, at sort of managing the, the back pain in terms of uh, once we identify it and once someone presents with it, um, but we know very little about effective strategies for actually preventing back pain in the first place, and that was the real impetus of this trial. Now, just to give you a brief kind of overview of the uh, trial, I'm going to present the uh, sort of definitive cost analysis here. Uh, but this is the overall design of the trial. Uh, we screened about uh, seven or 8,000 uh, soldiers, um, and then roughly uh, 4,000 or of those met the inclusion criteria uh, and consented to uh, participation. So obviously quite a sizable uh, sort of a, of a trial. Uh, there were, it was a forearm sort of a study. Uh, we were looking at uh, really two components. Uh, we wanted to test the effects of a core stabilization exercise program. Um, you know, all the principles around, you know, activating the transversus abdominis uh, and those sorts of things. 
uh, versus a traditional uh, um, military training program, which is basically doing bent knee, sort of hand behind the head, traditional sit-up training, if you will. Uh, and then the other component was uh, implementing a psychosocial-based sort of educational program where soldiers would attend a, a class that we would review the back book and sort of give them uh, healthy, uh, conduct sort of a healthy messaging campaign, if you will, uh, about back pain and that if you get it, here's how you cope with it and those sorts of things. So um, there were a total of four groups uh, with or without the course stabilization program and then with or without um, the psychosocial program, and then, of course, the combinations uh, um, resulted in a, in a total of, of four groups. Um, and then we followed the soldiers up after completion for, um, uh, for two years to record both the incidence and or severity of, of back pain with the idea that perhaps the course stabilization and or the educational program might not influence the incidence uh, necessarily, but perhaps uh, the educational program might uh, decrease the severities because you would um, have sort of more um, adaptable sort of coping strategies on board if you had received that uh, education. Now, these are sort of the overall um, uh, results. Um, uh, there really were no differences in uh, back pain incidents between uh, core stabilization and traditional uh, exercise. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons why we hypothesize this might be the case. But basically, the core stabilization um, didn't work um, as we had intended. Um, we conducted training in large groups. I mean, you know, the, the, the stu kind of big advocates, if you will, of course, they, you know, would suggest this is an individualized type of thing, um, you know, where you give lots of biofeedback and corrective training. And, you know, th there's no way that practically that would be possible. These soldiers are training at uh, O-Dark 30 in the morning in groups of, you know, hundreds. And so the staff, obviously, to do that would just be cost prohibitive. So they were all trained in doing the exercises, um, but there really wasn't a lot of monitoring um, while they were performing um, the exercises. Um, on the other hand, uh, the brief psychosocial education um, did have some protective uh, effect for preventing uh, back pain, um, an overall 3% um, uh, uh, decrease over the uh, two-year period of time, and you can see the associated numbers needed to treat uh, of, of 30. And uh, just again, some of the uh, uh, additional results, those who received the psychosocial program experienced about a half of a month uh, or, or 0.5 fewer months uh, where they had experienced uh, back pain over the two-year period of time. And they also had a, uh, a, a slower time to incidence. So those soldiers who received uh, psychosocial uh, education, when they did get back to pain, it was longer, it was further into the two-year period compared to those uh, who did not receive the psychosocial uh, educational program. Now, there's lots of ways to sort of interpret this. On the one hand, you might argue that a 3.5% increase is a relatively small um, uh, sort of effect size, and certainly we had statistical power coming out of our, you know, everywhere. Everything was significant in this sort of a study just because of the sample size. And so you have to make some judgment about what this means kind of clinically. Uh, and so that was really the impetus of this sort of cost analysis because we know that back pain is, is extremely frequent. 
Um, and so perhaps um, even small effect sizes, if you can observe some cost savings, even if they're modest, when they're translated across the hundreds and thousands of individuals that experience garden variety back pain, that the overall sort of savings to the healthcare system may not be, um, you know, all that, uh, all that small. And so the purpose of this analysis was really to, to uh, examine uh, two-year uh, health care costs in those who received the psychosocial program versus those who didn't. And so just a little bit more detail on the methodology. These were all, again, healthy individuals without any incidence of uh, any history of, of back pain. Um, roughly uh, 4,000 soldiers. They, they were in um, what's called advanced individual training. Um, these are uh, enlisted soldiers who are just out of basic training, and now they're uh, in their um, occupational specialty training. They're learning, in this case, to become a combat, uh, combat medic. And the ages were between 18 uh, and 35. Um, and like what you might think, uh, these are not all sort of 18, 19-year-olds. Uh, uh, because of the, uh, of, the, of the war and the need to recruit, we sort of, you know, in, you know, basically if you were alive and had a pulse for the last 10 years, you've been able to get into our military, no matter how old you were. I mean, some of these guys we were consenting, they were like older than me. They were like 43, 44 years old. And no offense to anyone who's of that age, but that's really old to be a soldier um, and doing what these guys are, are, and gals are, are doing. Um, so primarily we excluded people who had any history of, of back pain. Um, and you can see how here we operationally defined that. Um, any individual who had had limited work or physical activity due to a previous episode um, or if they had an episode that was greater than 48 hours, or if at any time um, they had sought uh, medical care for uh, back pain. Any one of those sort of three operational definitions, if they met, uh, they were excluded. And then we uh, basically excluded anyone with any other sort of serious condition um, that might prevent them from completing um, the physical uh, training uh, program. Now, rather than individually randomizing um, soldiers, um, we... Uh, uh, perform kind of a cluster uh, randomization. Uh, you know, soldiers train in groups, and so it would really kind of mess up the whole esprit de corps to sort of randomly, uh, uh, you, you know, assign soldiers within a company to go do one thing, and their um, soldiers, you know, to the left and right are going to be assigned to go do something else. I mean, there's no way this would have ever been conducted in an individual uh, randomization sort of scenario. So the entire company um, was, uh, was randomized to a particular um, intervention um, in order to, again, make this uh, as pragmatic as possible and decrease the, uh, the burden on the, uh, the instructors. Uh, the two programs, uh, traditional and then core stabe, uh, the exercises were performed as part of their routine um, uh, unit training. Uh, they performed these uh, basically for four to five days uh, a week. Uh, the, um, the experimental aspect of the intervention was about a five-minute dose. Um, so they were performing other sorts of calisthenics and running and other things that were done in both groups. But in terms of the key differences between the groups, um, one of the groups was performing traditional bent knee sit-ups, and the other group was performing um, sort of five minutes of a cord uh, stabilization exercise program. It was led by um, the uh, drill instructors. Again, we were trying to make this as pragmatic as possible. If this ever is going to sort of be uh, generalized to the rest of the military, um, we're not about to hire a bunch of exercise technicians to sort of lead this um, uh, training, and so uh, we trained the drill instructors to actually uh, deliver it. 
uh, study personnel did observe uh, training and monitor compliance, et cetera, et cetera, and meet with cadre to uh, answer questions. You can see here uh, the traditional program, again, traditional bent knee sit-ups that are sort of focused on the uh, superficial abdominal muscles, uh, and then the core stay uh, exercises uh, focus more on the deeper uh, abdominal muscles, and you can see the selection of, of exercises that were included um, uh, there. Uh, the psychosocial uh, program was uh, heavily based in the back book, which if you're familiar with um, um, uh, the back book, it's basically a um, sort of a healthy messaging um, strategy around back pain. Uh, lots of, you know, pictures of people being physically active, um, a, a real de-emphasis of, of sort of patho uh, anatomy and um, education around uh, fear avoidance beliefs and the importance of continued uh, moving. And so the class was basically a 45-minute class uh, emphasizing all these principles, and then there was sort of an email campaign um, over the course of the uh, study period where they were sent reminders and, and, and sort of, again, healthy messaging for, uh, for back pain. Now, to establish the cost, we extracted claims data out of the uh, military health systems uh, database, um, which we sort of, uh, for shorthand, call uh, M2. This is a database that's maintained by the uh, TRICARE management uh, activity, which is essentially the military health systems uh, payer um, and has all the sort of a sundry of health-related uh, utilization data. We extracted claims both from the direct care system, um, which is care provided within the military facility, um, but then also uh, what we call network or also known as purchased care. A lot of soldiers, if there's not a specialist sort of available within their region, they'll be referred off base um, and so we wanted to be able to capture sort of the full universe of care that um, a soldier may have received over the subsequent uh, period um, uh, during the, the follow-up. And so we searched for relevant uh, back pain-related ICD-9 codes, um, um, excluded a, a, a couple of the uh, of codes, but basically trying to capture uh, garden variety um, uh, low back pain, um, and then all the data was de-identified before being uh, analyzed. Um, to um, sort of be included uh, in the follow-up, um, the soldiers had to be uh, eligible within the database for uh, six months prior to uh, when they had their first episode of back pain because we wanted to ensure that this was sort of their first episode uh, of back pain. And then um, also wanted to be able to look at any sort of comorbidities that might confound uh, the outcome uh, from uh, their back pain uh, as well. And then uh, we recorded any number of these comorbidities, uh, mental health conditions, um, and then any variety of other sorts of, of co standard kinds of comorbidities that you might be uh, interested in potentially uh, controlling for. And so during the two-year period, we uh, counted the number of, uh, of ICD-9 uh, codes related to back pain, uh, recorded use of prescription medication, if a hospitalization had occurred, and if so, for what reason, uh, and then also looked at uh, opioid uh, use, and then calculated uh, both low back pain-related health care costs as well as uh, total uh, health care costs for both inpatient and outpatient uh, care. Um, all the standard uh, descriptive statistics uh, were calculated and presented uh, as both mean uh, and median um, uh, costs and all the various um, log transformations that, um, uh, uh, that needed to be uh, conducted. Um, the data analysis was basically a, um, 
uh, a chi-square between the, uh, the costs associated with um, those soldiers who received psychosocial education versus those who, want, who did not. So again, these four groups for the purposes of this analysis were collapsed down into uh, two groups. Um, and, uh, and then the appropriate analysis of variance um, uh, were run. And then, of course, any variables that were different uh, at baseline were considered as, as covariates and controlled for in the definitive uh, analysis. And you can see here then we performed the uh, Wilcoxon sum test and then the uh, uh, two-sample t-test to look at um, the differences in cost between uh, the groups. Now, this is a little bit busy and probably hard to read from your uh, vantage point, but we ended up with, with essentially a couple of thousand soldiers in each group, about 2,000 in the psychosocial group, and about 2,300 um, who did not receive the uh, psychosocial uh, educational uh, program out of the total of roughly 4,000 that were uh, randomized. Um, again, because of, of power sorts of issues, um, we found all sorts of baseline differences, many of which were probably negligible. I mean, the difference in age was significant, but it was like, you know, half of a year or a one-year difference. Um, some differences in education income, but again, just to be conservative, uh, controlled uh, for those uh, differences in the uh, analysis. So roughly 96% of the soldiers were available for analysis. Um, you know, there were, um, you know, four or five percent that between the time we had studied them, they were out of the military for, you know, whatever reason, um, either administrative discharge or, or um, medical, um, or as we actually learned in doing the, the follow-up, some had actually, of course, been, you know, killed in uh, combat, actually. Um, and, you know, those are another part of this follow up was um, a telephone call center. And um, you can imagine when, you know, we had their parents' phone, we had a very exhaustive database to reach these people. But you can imagine when you call up soldiers and trying to get follow up data and you're talking to mom or dad and, and uh, we had some, uh, we had a pretty sophisticated call center. And the first time that happened, you can imagine that, um, uh, you know, a parent let us know that their child had been, you know, killed in, in combat. Um, we sort of, that was our first sort of major adverse event. We kind of had to go back to the IRB and say, you know, we didn't really, like, plan for this um, and have some mechanisms in place. And we were actually able to then um, uh, reconcile the database with the, um, with the sort of killed in combat list, if you will, um, and we prevented that actually happening. You're calling this number of, of soldiers. It's just going to happen. Uh, and there were about five or six others that at least we were able to not call them because we were aware of, of that issue. Um, in any event, uh, among those uh, soldiers, um, uh, we, there were about, out of the 4,300, roughly 3,900 uh, who had incurred at least some health care costs during the, the two-year uh, period of time. So um, I'm, I'm always interested in this 10%. Um, I mean, there were actually 10% who actually had not been to the doctor at all over the course of uh, two years. They were still on active duty and just had managed to sort of escape the health care system altogether. And so understanding who those people are uh, might be a study of, of health in and of itself. Um, there were about 16 soldiers who had incurred um, costs for at least one episode of back pain. This is total across both groups, so roughly 700 soldiers. Um, and, in fact, fewer soldiers who had received the psychosocial program incurred low back pain-related costs compared to those who did not. Uh, it was roughly about 14% of those who received uh, psychosocial uh, versus the 17% um, who uh, did not. And again, that's that 3.3% uh, difference, at least in pure utilization. 
Now, when you look at the um, low back pain uh, related costs, um, you can see that the, the, the average cost was about $1,000 uh, per case. These are just low back costs, not total uh, health care costs. And those soldiers who received psychosocial education um, had roughly uh, about a, uh, let's see, about a, uh, what's the difference? It's about a $70, $80 difference or so um, between um, uh, those who received the psychosocial education versus those uh, who did not. And again, you might say that's a relatively modest savings, but uh, when extrapolated um, across the incidents has, you know, some more uh, serious implications, especially when you look at um, the sort of the low dose of psychosocial education that was delivered, a very low-cost uh, type of intervention to uh, deliver. Um, there weren't any, when we looked at total health care costs, there weren't any differences in the number of soldiers who had incurred at least some health care costs between psychosocial and non-psychosocial groups. Um, uh, but in fact, the mean uh, health care costs uh, uh, were different. You see here, um, this is just the uh, average across uh, both groups, uh, was about uh, $4,000 uh, per case. Uh, but when you uh, look at it between psychosocial and non-psychosocial, um, this is where some interesting cost savings uh, showed up. Uh, the average case for um, having received psychosocial was about 4,300, and uh, for not receiving it was closer to uh, 48 or 4,900. So about a $500 difference. And so what's interesting is that some of the cost savings were actually larger in total health care costs than they were in the back pain-related health care costs, um, which you know has to make us think about actually what is this psychosocial education sort of doing. Um, it may have more general types of protective um, kind of effects than it does just um, for um, back pain. Because the message of the campaign was was sort of a sort of an anti-healthcare kind of a campaign. It was sort of a look, we've over-medicalized this problem of back pain among a lot of other things and when you go to the doctor, you're going to oftentimes get a lot of stuff you don't need, and they're going to do a lot of stuff that hurts you, and just kind of, you know, when you get this stuff, try to sort of stay out of the healthcare system uh, in general, and that was the kind of the gist of the message, and uh, at least for total healthcare costs, um, that seemed to actually work uh, to some uh, to some degree. Um, for those soldiers who received psychosocial education and incurred at least some health care costs, again, you can see differences of about $600 per, uh, per case favoring the psychosocial education program and about $70 for the low back pain-related um, costs. And again, you can look at this a lot of different um, ways. This is sort of the opportunity cost, if you will. Um, had the 2,000 soldiers in the um, psychosocial education program not received uh, the psychosocial education program. You can see the implications of that from a cost perspective. Uh, roughly 91% um, of them would have had a, a cost of 4,800 as opposed to 4,300, which at least over this two-year period in this sample was about a million dollars sort of total uh, cost saving amongst this, um, you know, 4,000 sort of member uh, sort of sample. Um, and, you know, so when you start to kind of, you know, this gets into some really... Um, depending if you want to be conservative or aggressive, the assumptions you make. But if you start to sort of extrapolate this across the whole um, uh, military uh, and uh, in training environments, obviously these cost savings can start to become uh, fairly substantial um, um, given the, the relatively low cost of actually delivering a psychosocial-based educational program, at least in the way that we delivered it here. 
soldiers had, uh, who received psychosocial education had both lower total costs, back pain costs, and it was across most of the categories, uh, lab, pharmacy, lower imaging, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, which you know, get, you know, is positive for protecting folks from unnecessary uh, and invasive uh, testing. And so these data uh, reinforce um, what some other studies have so- shown in the secondary prevention of back pain, and that is that psychosocial education um, is, seems to be sort of protective um, both for secondary uh, purposes as well in this particular case for primary prevention of, of, of back pain. And so hopefully these data uh, might be useful to uh, help inform uh, policymaking when it uh, comes to um, you know, uh, improving the science around how we uh, train uh, soldiers and help protect them from, um, from, from injury. And just a few acknowledgments. Lots and lots of folks involved. This was a, uh, quite an effort, as you might uh, imagine. Okay, and without uh, further ado, I think we've got uh, a few minutes left um, just for a uh, sort of a panel session. And I think we've got uh, two mics, uh, and so we'll just kind of open it up to the floor um, about this topic, or if we want to get way off track, that's uh, certainly okay, too. We can chase some rabbit trails. My name is Joe Berman. I'm affiliated with the Zablocki VA Medical Center in Milwaukee, so I thank all four of you for your service. Um, Another aspect that um, hasn't come up here is is the capacity uh, for partnerships with the military uh, to develop um, um, innovative devices uh, two that come to mind are the exoskeleton and 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 uh, um, a handheld infrared light device called the warp. I was going to ask if, if um, any of you had any familiarity with either of those or if you just wanted to comment on that topic in particular. Yeah, certainly. I know the exoskeleton has been, uh, is going through some testing right now with the Canadian military. Um, and uh, there's a program. Alice, you know, is everybody familiar with what the exoskeleton is? Do you mind giving just a kind of a brief description? It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. It's too bad. Do you have a- You know, you should bring it up on Google. There's some great videos. Oh, yeah. There's, so basically, it's exactly like it says. It's an exoskeleton that can help people uh, walk again. They're using it a lot, actually, right now for treating osteoarthritis. Um, oh, it's not okay. Um, but they are, there's a... Um, uh, some programs in Canada whereby um, products that are going to come to market that ha- are at that stage of testing, uh, if they can get a federal government partner, they can get money to test with the federal government partner. And I know they're testing the exoskeleton right now. Uh, I'm not familiar with the infrared device that you're speaking about, but um, I know that the technologies are enormous, and um, it is one of the, the big areas. Um, if, for instance, we've worked with a team as well that have developed an ener- energy-generating backpack for going out into the field. Um, and what they can do is it only weighs two and a half pounds, but it converts kinetic energy into battery power. So they only have to carry a small number of batteries because, of course, when you go in the field, that's some of the big weight in the rucksacks is the batteries that, that um, the soldiers have to carry, and so now they can carry minimal weight. So, yeah, a lot of that testing goes on, too. Um, I think probably when we focus on healthcare, we don't think of that as much, but we really should because a lot of it's about prevention. So, um, yeah, that does come forward very much so. 
I would just add, you know, one of the things we don't do as good of a job on is really the partnerships between countries. And this is where there's some interesting, um, you know, just restrictions with funding agencies. It, it gets very, very difficult if any of you, you know, um, have tried to collaborate internationally. It's really difficult because you basically have to make the case that the expertise doesn't exist within the United States. And most funding agencies are, you know, we're pretty kind of arrogant and think that all sort of expertise lies within the U.S., and that's a little bit overly generalized by certainly. So it's possible. It's possible, but it's just, it's it's typically very difficult, and, and I don't know if Canada might have some of those same restrictions. It's tax, most of the, the research dollars are taxpayer-funded dollars, and so there's just a heavy um, uh, sort of pressure to sort of keep those dollars um, in-house, if you will, um, for at least research uh, purposes. Yeah, I mean, the Canadian research dollars typically stay in-house, but um, um, this this program, like I said, this de devices program that they've developed with the Canadian government is really quite something, and a lot of uh, really neat technological advances have come forward. Yeah. So, yeah, it is it is a very growing area, absolutely, of research. It's a, it's a great question. My name's Carolyn McManus, and I'm a physical therapist, and I consult at the VA in a role where I'm teaching veterans the self-regulation of their nervous system, so things like body awareness, breathing. And one of the things um, that I found really interesting to learn was in uh, coaching veterans to do these practices where they're becoming more aware of their body, it will often trigger a flashback or a memory. And the relationship between um, helping vets learn more pain management kinds of skills, which is one of the things I do, and then how PTSD and chronic pain have these overlapping influences. So I'm just really curious, um, from your experience or your research, what's going on or, or anything to share on that topic? I can say that uh, <clears throat> we... We're doing this uh, a big performance triad where the, uh, the the Surgeon General of the Army is really looking at uh, at least with our active duty soldiers. There, you know, we have so many issues. Chronic pain is a big, big thing, uh, but just understanding that a little bit more and its relationship. So there's a lot of research being done on the role of sleep because you know we have sleep is uh, has a relationship with uh, with some of this chronic pain, and uh, we don't know that you know the full extent of that. But a lot of these soldiers are coming back, and that's just a a very common, you know, question when you ask them uh, about their sleep patterns or, you know, I mean, when, when you're screening for red flags, I see this all the time. Soldiers come back and like, well, I just don't sleep. You know, I sleep an hour at night. And again, what, what are the implications of that? Uh, and so this, this performance triad, it's got three, there's an activity lead, a nutrition lead, and then a sleep lead. Those are the three uh, main things. And it's kind of a piloting uh, phase that we're kicking off in September with three big units to see if we can, uh, you know, screen and monitor those and then provide some interventions and see if that makes a difference uh, and all that. I'm looking at this from an occupational therapy perspective, so sorry. Um, but I do extensively do clinical work and I'm referred in my private practice uh, a number of the most complex cases and that the way that you speak about your veterans is exactly the type of veteran, uh, young or old, that I would see chronic pain, uh, sleep issues are huge, but also then you have the drugs um, and alcohol issues that are kind of um, making a bigger impact of that as well. And um, some people are recommending reminiscence therapy, and I believe that um, um, that's happening in Vancouver right now, and, and there's some research being done in that. 
I'm always a little bit hesitant to go in that and without any training and also with other specialists um, that would be able to handle the psychos, the, the actually when a trigger happens, what do you do with that? And I'm always very worried about telling occupational therapists or physiotherapists or the OTAs um, to to take on those types of roles when they know that triggers are kind of live in a, in a sense. Um, so I don't, I, I can only tell you that clinically I've seen, um, some great success in some of the, um, the sleep hygiene, um, classes that the, um, the Americans have developed a very good, um, sleep hygiene workbook and it's fantastic. It's 10, um, sessions, um, that you can do with them. And that's really decreases kind of the stress level and decreases some of the um, kind of symptoms of post-traumatic stress that you're talking with, uh, talking about. Um, and also it definitely helps with chronic pain um, because obviously with sleep, um, they can handle pain a lot better and they're, on the pain scale, it goes down quite a bit. So I, I'm, if that gives you any indication, we are doing something about that. Uh, I'd like to thank you all very much. For the presentation, it's always nice to see what's going on in terms of uh, innovation in the military, which certainly affects what we're able to do uh, outside of the military and pushing boundaries for us. I was interested in knowing if um, certainly um, PTSD is is a significant issue. Uh, we have some issues in sport and and motor vehicle accidents, where motor vehicle accidents are focused entirely on soft tissue injuries post-injury, whereas sports management is entirely focused on the concussion aspect of what happens after an injury and never the two will meet or they aren't right now. Um, the, uh, I'm interested in any research going on in the military right now focusing on uh, trying to uh, differentiate uh, the minor head injury from the PTSD and or other aspects that are affecting people after being exposed to, uh, to, to trauma, both um, thinking more of the physical trauma than the emotional trauma right now, though. Yeah, it's um, one of the things, um, thanks for your question, Rob. One of the things we were able to do last year uh, was to bring the sport concussion world together with what the military calls blast injury. And um, it's the same thing. It's all, it's all focused on mild traumatic brain injury. And uh, so it was, it's really neat um, to see because, of course, like the NHL puts a lot of money into sport concussion, and it's really neat to see the two worlds working together. I think what the military has brought to the table, because the sport concussion world are, are great at diagnosing and, and treating, what the military has brought to the table is the mental health aspect, the PTSD, so looking at distinguishing the mental health diagnosis from the traumatic brain injury. And that's coming back now to the sport concussion world thinking, oh, you know, maybe there are some psychological sequelae here that we need to be thinking about as well. So it's been a, a really nice marriage from our perspective to watch. Um, and uh, moving on, you know, actually into humans from rats, really, where a lot of the blast injury was being done, but it, into humans in which we've seen. I mean, I think it's a legacy of Afghanistan as well because people were... It's the first war where we've seen predominantly people being blown up instead of shot. So, um, you know, I think that that's, yeah, definitely one of, one of the areas that has, um, has been of, of real focus. Um, and, and just interestingly, um, 
talking about some international statistics on mental health, the Brits have a, their institute is just focused on epidemiology. So we don't know why, we just know that this is. Uh, the number one mental health diagnosis in post-deployment for the American troops is post-traumatic stress disorder. For Canadian troops, it's depression. And for British troops, it's binge drinking. So there's obviously some social aspects to this as well, I would think. Um, uh, and, and all of those also related to traumatic brain injury. So the, the pieces get a little, a little more complex as you go. I don't know if anyone has a comment from the U.S. perspective. but Thank you for your service. I actually am a graduate of the Army Baylor Physical Therapy Program in 1989, mm-hmm. and I did serve during the Persian Gulf in uh, Lanshtul as a physical therapist. So it's really exciting for me to see you all talk about a lot of the Army uh, and military issues. I'm very curious. My father's a retired colonel um, in San Antonio, and he talks a lot about the Center for the Intrepid. And uh, I currently work in home care where we work a lot with the VA. And I'm just curious if you can comment on the um, Center for the Intrepid and how you feel that in the future those amputee patients will affect um, us in the civilian world as we're seeing them as they age and um, how they will be affecting the VA system, which certainly is um, always financially strapped. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question, and, and these issues, um, we're starting to wrestle with them in a big way now. Um, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, the Center for the Intrepid is a, um, a sort of multi-specialty um, amputee, traumatic brain sort of um, uh, injury sort of uh, center of expertise, if you will. It's a state-of-the-art facility funded mostly by private um, you know, donations. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, it's the Cadillac of, of amputee care. It just the best orth, you know, orthotists and prosthetists in the world. Techn- budgets are, they don't use the word budget. It's like if you need it, you get it kind of a thing. And, and, and obviously through the funding associated with that, the um, science of prosthetics is just is, is more than quadrupled. I mean, probably, we're probably 10x where we were before. Which, on the one hand, is 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 a good thing um, because our soldiers get uh, very very first class care. The, the difficulty is all the funding has been a fo- uh, uh, you know sort of tied to the immediate post injury system. So the soldiers, once they're uh, sort of finished with their initial rehab and they've got a definitive prosthesis, in most cases they have multiple prostheses. I mean, they practically have a prosthesis for every. Thing they want to do, ski, water ski, snow ski. I mean, these guys get outfitted very, very well. The problem is, is when they get into the VA system, the technology is so advanced that no one can actually provide any maintenance on their, their prosthetics. And so they're a bit, so essentially what happens is they're, they're sort of enslaved to that geography if they want to have long-term care. Um, and there's similar centers, not just the Center for the Intrepid. There's one like that in uh, Bethesda um, out in San Diego, and then there's one in, in D.C. as well. And so um, the difficulty is, is that as the funding now is starting to um, um, not dry up, but certainly drop off um, really dramatically, there's all these questions about what's going to happen to these prosthetics, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are sort of getting shoved into closets. And guys that had, um, oh, I'm forgetting all the the, uh, the fancy um, uh, arms that they're using. They're going back to hooks because <laughs> they work all the time, and they don't need maintenance. And they may not look good, but they sure do work well. 
And, um, and so it's just an interesting dilemma, the whole technology, uh, practical, um, where does that balance lie? Uh, for sure, we've swung too far to the technology side because that's where the, I mean, we've just got funding and research and that's, so, so now we're having to cope with how do you deal with the real world scenario when you don't always have that kind of money. And so we'll see the curve shift back, um, uh, I suspect. And we're still way better off um, uh, than, than where we were. One of the real fascinating things is even some of the limb salvage uh, work that's being done um, um, uh, with a, the, what's called the IDEO device. I don't know if any, many of you have, are familiar with that. There were a lot of these soldiers... You know, we used to take it for granted that if you were an amputee, you weren't going to go back on active duty. Well, obviously, that whole uh, paradigm has just been blown out of, of the water. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers who are deployed, you know, on in special forces teams, for that matter, jumping out of airplanes with prosthetics on. Um, and in some of these soldiers, we could spare their, um, keep them from being an amputee. Um, but their limb, because of muscle nerve damage, it, it still it wasn't very functional for them. And so you had guys that had a perfectly good sort of leg for at least, you know, regular activities and maybe some light jogging. But they really couldn't go back um, to doing vigorous activity. And so they were wanting, here you have very healthy people insisting that they have an amputation done. Um, because, they, you know, which obviously doesn't make a lot of sense on the one hand. But on the other hand... The, the science of the prosthetics is such that they could then go back on active duty. And so, obviously, a lot of people are asking the question, you know, do we really want to, you know, do these sort of elective amputations just to get them in a prosthetic? And so, in any event, the IDEO was a, um, a sort of a custom-fit orthotic that was developed uh, relatively low cost uh, compared to at least, you know, the prosthetics that's basically a, a human shock uh, it's 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 it's, uh, it's got some carbon fiber rods that run up the back of the calf. You know, think about your typical kind of orthosis strapped on up at the you know top of the leg, and and you you learn to um, do kind of a barefoot running style on the balls of your foot, and that pressure sort of activates these carbon fiber rods and adds energy into the system that allows your your you to function almost as if you had a prosthetic. Um, on so it's a you know it's a pretty interesting uh, technologies um, those kinds of technologies to me are where um, those are practical and can be sort of replicated and carried out in sort of the post hyper funding world um, that we have uh, have have now yeah it's it's very similar in Canada and I think one of the one of the really interesting things we've noticed is that it people um, have got the concept of the amputees as a super super soldier almost you know uh the whole cyborg thing and um uh, paul franklin who who uh was mentioned earlier i uh, i was talking to him one day and he said you know like i was an olympic athlete before i became an amputee i don't want to be one now um, so I think, and, and I think they, you know, we have to be cautious because there's a tremendous amount of pressure on them to overperform once they become an amputee. I mean, I, I just think it's something to be conscious of. Again, thank you all for your service. Um, I, I'm an academic, Southwest Baptist University, Dr. Steve Lesh. We have a lot of alumni that uh, go into the service. We're very grateful for them. Uh, and so certainly up on retirement next year, if you need a job. Yeah. I'll be giving my card four years towards retirement. We, we love hiring ex-military ex, uh, into our facility. I keep staring at this picture, and I've just got a question that's burning in my mind here, Lieutenant Colonel. And, and this goes right up the OT's alley. 
it's obvious why this guy may have injuries at some point in time, and I think that's obviously why you see this picture. One of our alumni is embedded with U.S. Navy SEAL Team 2. Um, we have a currently one of my uh, uh, alumni also is a Navy is in Afghanistan. Um, I hear routinely um, uh, from uh, uh, Lieutenant Commander Rainey, who is about to be deployed, the SEALs are going out, they get a lot with the Special Forces. And he has a lot of freedom in helping them change and do things. But yet then the other Navy uh, therapists we have, they don't have as much freedom to create or change their occupational hazards like the rucksack, rucksack palsy. It seems to me that that would be a critical area that we could bring to the military to help change. But is it such a bureaucratic beast that it's hard to change what some of these injuries are? I, I mean, again, rucksack palsy. We've got a name because of this operational uh, thing that they must carry. Yeah, to, to some degree. I mean, there there is a lot of tradition, and I'm I'm sure John knows this. With even just trying to get soldiers uh, in the study, he just talked about to do their physical training differently. You know, I mean, you've done sit ups forever that way, and you come in and you start talking about changing the way that you're doing things. There's just a lot of tradition and a lot of ways of uh, doing things, and these these decisions get made, you know, up at the, at the highest levels, and so it's very. Uh, difficult to, you know, come in and just make a change, uh, you know, just from the get-go from one study. You might even have several studies, but uh, um, I don't know. I mean, John probably has a little bit more to, to add to that, but it, it's it's not that easy. You know, you can't just step in and say, hey, let's do things a little bit differently. Yeah, I'm never, um, I'm never surprised anymore at the lack of extent to which data sort of drives policymaking. I mean, it, 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 there's just a lot of barriers um, you know, because of the military hierarchy is so sort of centralized control, um, again, these decisions, again, are made at sort of very high levels with people who trained many, many years ago in sort of the, the previous way we always did business, and that just seems still to be kind of the right way. Um, there's still a mentality that harder is better, you know, if it what doesn't, you know, kill me will make me stronger type of thing. And so really trying to embed a culture that um, really we're trying to optimize performance. Um, we're not trying to be tough. We're, it, and, and, and sometimes optimizing performance means doing less training um, and oftentimes doing it in a different sort of a, of a way. And, and um, the good news is there is a lot of very interesting um, uh, data around sort of the, you know, the, the 21st century sort of rucksack and what that looks like. And, um, and, uh, you know, trying to, you know, decrease the, you know, the weight um, and the weight that is there, try to distribute that in a, in a more sort of biomechanically friendly um, way. So it's, it's not an all or nothing kind of a story. Um, um, I, I think we have to be patient. I, I, you know, in the beginning of these conflicts, when you're getting involved in research, you hope that your work sort of impacts the current conflict. And at some level it can, but what tends to happen is we'll spend the next five or ten years really, truly learning um, um, what we actually learn, and, and then those policies will be more in effect for whatever the next big conflict is 10 or 15 years uh, down the road. So we'll certainly learn. Uh, it'll just kind of take us a while. The 15-year sort of evidence gap, we talk about it all the time in just healthcare practice, right? That there's about a 10 or 15-year lag. That, that same lag exists within uh, the military system as well. And to your to your point, I see that true then between the special forces 
It, it, it happens faster. The lag is shorter in the special ops guys. When they decide they want something, um, they get the attention of the president, like, like really fast. So the, the problem is, again, it's almost the opposite problem. They have so much um, sort of clout that they ask for a lot of things that are sort of stupid and that they see on you know, TV and somebody says, you've got to have this device or that device. And the next thing you know, the special forces, they're all buying this thing that probably there's no data to support it. So in those, sometimes actually decision-making in those communities gets almost too far ahead of the science, um, and they're out there doing a lot of kind of, you know, nonsense. It's a lot like um, the analogy is in prof with professional athletes. I mean, you know, I always like to say professional athletes get some of the worst care in the country um, because they have so much disposable income. They chase all these sorts of fad, um, you know, kinds of treatments, um, the, the same is sort of true in the special ops community. Um, um, they get a lot of good stuff, but there, there's a lot of um, fad stuff that kind of goes on as well just because of the um, sort of resources available to them. And to your point, um, there was a team in Canada that was hired by the military, a team of researchers, biomechanical researchers, to develop a new um, a mechanism for lifting the rucksack to take the pressure off. And it was so, it was so effective. I mean... It was adopted actually by Toyota for all of their plants as a back protective mechanism before the military got around to adopting it. They have now, but I mean, it moved into private industry faster, the exact same technology before it had gotten there. But another thing to your point, the number one in injuries in Canada, the number one injuries are in the combat arms, you know, infantry, armored artillery, the frontline guys. Number two is in the medical corps. So they are out there. They often have to carry a lot and, and put themselves in the same level of danger. Yeah. And there's a pragmatic aspect to it when you're there. And, you know, we can try to change all of uh, – I just remember feeling really helpless when the, these soldiers are out on six-day patrol. So they come back and, you know, all that you've learned about changing their environment and ergonomics and addressing <laughs> posture and all that stuff. I mean, you, what are the implications? Yeah, well – to, to some degree, you can't really do anything. And, and the other part is, you know, if someone's coming in and they've, they're complaining of back pain, well, yeah, of course they're going to have back pain. They're carrying all that stuff. They're sitting in a vehicle bouncing up and down for all these hours. They come back. They have like eight-hour break to shower, eat, go to sleep, and be back ready to go back out on the mission. Then maybe they get one day off every six days. And so to some degree, you know, it's like you're, you're hitting your hand with a hammer and you're like, my hand hurts. You know, what, what can I do? And, you know, the obvious thing is to pull them off the line, take all this stuff off them, but you can't do that. And so you're kind of caught in this, you know, I know exactly what would get rid of your back pain, but we, we can't do it because we're in this, you know, combat setting and uh, there's a lot of implications of <coughs> decreasing your patrol. I mean, if we do that to everybody, then there's nobody left for the mission or whoever's left it becomes a more dangerous mission because you've taken a couple people, uh, you know, uh, off their team. So, All right. Well, I think we've kind of come up against our uh, time clock here. And so just want to thank uh, everyone for attending and appreciate your time and enjoy the rest of your conference.